0: Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. Showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT A20. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisengrass.
1: It's also uh, the last show I'm going to do live this year as we go to the holiday. And I, I want to start and I'll come back to saying just how grateful I am to all of you for spending this time with me, for sharing your thoughts and for taking the things we talk about here and sharing them with other people. It's a, a, a such an important time for our country and the work that we do together here and then that you take on in other places is so very, very important. Okay, let's talk about the world. And by the world I mean, well, let's start with this. As you know, Russia has invaded Europe. They seek to redraw the map by force of arms. They use rape and child abduction as tactics to weaken and, resol- and, and, and you know, weaken the resolve of their victims. So far, American leadership and Ukrainian courage with strong support from a terrified Europe, have stalled this invasion and weakened the Russian military machine. Around the world, autocrats like President Xi in China are taking note. But now, in this crucial moment on the battlefield, Republicans are walking away. They have variously said, gee, we don't know what the end game is. And golly, we've just got to protect our own border for, before we protect Ukraine's. That's what they said. And it's utter crap. Look, look what they did. What they did was open an impeachment inquiry while admitting they had no evidence of wrongdoing and then promptly leave town for vacation. That's who these people are. Please. This week, we learned that a 10 inch thick binder of highly classified Russian election interference data went missing during the final hours of the Trump administration, and it's yet to be recovered. The the, the binder contained raw data, sources and methods, and analyses. Experts say its release would be deeply damaging to our national security and would likely result in the killing of operatives and sources. And according to one witness, it was last seen with former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Okay, remember what they said? Mishandling classified information? They should go to jail oh, I'm sorry, they are going to jail, but we are letting the due process run its course, as we should. But don't let them get up there with their lies and pretend they are anything other than a disaster for our country. Really? Seriously? Where is it? Is it in Moscow? Who knows? Maybe they traded it for a high rise. Meanwhile, of course, the Crazy GOP leadership continue to poison our politics with the autocratic playbook of lies, intimidation, covert ops to subvert our elections. And, you know, I could talk about each of those. And we have on this show. Shamelessly, but tellingly, of course, the GOP elevated to House Speaker, the author of the strategy to disenfranchise millions of voters in swing states that voted for Joe Biden. Nope, those votes don't count. These people are terrible. And as we bring the year to a close, there can no longer be even a shred of doubt that today's GOP, Mr. Trump's GOP, not Abe Lincoln's, Mr. Trump's, has allied with Russia and autocracy against American security, against Americans' national interests, and in opposition to our nearly 250 year history of expanding democracy. And that's what the history is. We've sure uh, had to fight to expand it every time because it didn't start perfect. I don't know what Make America Great Again uh, is about. Um, We are about to be great. We are about to create a real shared democracy for the first time. I am so proud of that. And I am not going to let these people drag us backwards. Look, we know this too, not just what side they're on. We know that like all autocrats, They brag and boast that no one can stand up to their power. They stick their chins up high in the air, and they tell us, oh, my crowd was the biggest crowd. It's a lie. Remember, they told us to cower before their unstoppable red wave, and they published hundreds of bogus polls so that we thought maybe they were right. And then again, Americans stopped that wave. Nope, not right. Lies. They use their outsized power that they gained through the Electoral College, through gerrymandering and through the corrupt Citizens United decision to impose a deeply unpopular agenda on the majority of Americans. And let's remember what their agenda is. Outlaw abortion. Idolize guns. Ban books. Give the wealthiest, even more tax cut, double down on climate-destroying fossil fuels. That's who they are. And they do this because to them, really, the will and welfare of the American people are irrelevant. Power is all they want. And look, as much as I'd like to, we cannot call today's GOP un-American because this hateful strain has always been with us. Mr Trump and Speaker Johnson they are heirs to the slave power before the civil war to the gilded age money you know that chewed people up in their factories those robber barons to the KKK which tried to intimidate all over the country and, and to the John Birch Society that lasted you know into the well into the 1960s in fact overcoming these powerful forces is the great arc of American history, and the one that we get to participate in once again. As ever, this isn't a straightforward fight. Winning requires us living our values and showing people, showing, not just arguing the other guys are bad, they're bad, but showing what we care about. And you know what? We have to do some good work, and we are doing good work. These past few years, under Democratic leadership, under Joe Biden's leadership, The government organized to deliver vaccines to end the crippling pandemic. That was, that you know, that took talent, real governing talent and will. With the help from the then Democratic Congress, Mr. Biden not only guided us to the strongest economic recovery, he also began the enormously difficult task of restructuring that economy so that its benefits would be more widely and fairly shared. No longer can the wealthiest expect to reap all the rewards, and we're beginning to see that compression again. And, and because of the, you know, Inflation Reduction Act, which we've talked a lot before, inflation was a piece of it. Um, that that legislation, remember, not a single Republican vote, not one. And yet now, because of it, America is leading the world in the fight against climate change. that the, the stark difference about caring for Americans and using them as props is even clearer if you look at the states. I mean, in blue America, women are free to make their own reproductive decisions. In red America, women not only lack that freedom, look what just happened in Texas, their lives are threatened. It's appalling. And, and red states, not blue ones, have the highest per capita murder rates Something about that, you know, everybody's got a gun (laughs) and they have lower life expectancy. My gosh, I could go on. I could go on. But Americans have figured this out, and it's not just Democrats. People you know, who don't care about political parties are joining groups like Swing Left or Indivisible or Run for Something in record numbers. And you know what? Democrats are now running for seats all over North Carolina and Texas and so many other blue spots where seats used to go uncontested. The message is getting out, and it's getting out all over the place. Soon, uh, um, we'll talk about Iowa and the school board elections they just had there. The message is getting out. Look, this coming year offers those of us who care about America and about our democracy and about our rights and about each other the same opportunities as those who came before us in, you know, in important times to defeat the forces of power and privilege and to instead continue to perfect the union. It is a remarkable time to be alive and to be part of this fight. And those of you who are doing it, you know what? We are now um, in line for a greatest generation conversation because this is the biggest threat. I'm committed to this battle with both feet up to my neck, all in, however you want to say it. And I'm going to do everything everything I can to inform voters and to help build on ramps to bring people into this fight who have, you know, maybe not yet paid attention to the news or those who just hear the blearing headlines, you know, blaring headlines. We need to get them involved. But here's the thing. I take enormous comfort and I get a lot of energy from knowing we're in this fight together. And, you know, again, this is the last time I'm going to talk to you this year. I am deeply grateful to you for that. Okay, we're going to take a break. And um, when we come back, fabulous Laura Bellin is joining me.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraff on WCPT 820.
1: You know, it wasn't that long ago, really, not that long ago, that Iowa sent Democrat Tom Vilsack to the governor's mansion, Democrat Tom Harkin to the U.S. Senate. Uh, Women's reproductive rights were protected in their constitution. I don't know. Today, it's Trump country. And that transition is enormously important to understand. And there's really, you know, no one better to help us see what's going on than Laura Bellin, who is the prolific journalist whose bleeding heartland is a must read for anyone who wants to understand that state. Hey, Laura, welcome back. Look, you and I've been talking about Iowa on this show for a couple of years now, and at least from where I sit, it sure looks like the state has changed in that time, you know, and changed in, right?
2: Democratic trifecta here. Democrats controlled both chambers of the legislature, and Shed Culver was our governor following Tom Vilsack. So, it, it really felt. I would not say that it ever felt like a solid blue state, but it felt like a very solid swing state.
1: Yeah, and and I, it, you can be a you can be a Democratic state and not a, you know, not a like East Coast liberal state because that's it's a big tent party. But right. right now, it's a it's it feels like a MAGA household. So I want to go through with you because we have some time and it's you know the end of the year. Some of the Both the governing changes, so we really understand what's happened, and then the politics around it. Um, And like, like, what's happened with women's reproductive rights in Iowa? Let's just start there because it's so important, and we'll go through a list.
2: Absolutely. So. Uh, abortion remains legal in Iowa up to 20 weeks. The previous law, that the Republican trifecta passed a 20-week abortion ban in 2017, and that is in effect. They then attempted to pass what they call a heartbeat bill. It's a misnomer because it's not a fetal heartbeat. But in any case, basically a six-week ban. They attempted to pass that. It was struck down by the court. They tried to reinstate that after the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, the Iowa Supreme Court, deadlocked on that. And so the Republican controlled legislature came together this summer to pass a new six week abortion ban. Uh, it was uh, the governor signed it. it. There was immediately a lawsuit filed by Planned Parenthood and the ACLU of Iowa. And it, the law is enjoined pending the result of this litigation. So right now, the previous law remains in effect. Abortion is legal. But we don't know at some point in the next year, or perhaps two years, the Iowa Supreme Court is going to decide whether to uphold this new six-week abortion ban. So that would put Iowa you know, among the most restrictive states if that is allowed to go into effect. And what's happening in the background is that the Iowa Board of Medicine is drafting administrative rules that would implement the abortion ban if the Iowa Supreme Court ever allows it to go into effect. And uh, it's just not a pretty picture if that happens.
1: I read somewhere that already um, in the last few years, in part because of uh, the 20-week rule, because of the uh, political pressure, that there are many fewer abortions in the state, but there are also uh, like a rise in syphilis cases because people can't get um, uh, medical conversations about any reproductive issues.
3: Well, the
2: rise in STI started, another thing the Republican trifecta did in their first year, which was 2017, is they defunded the Planned Parenthood family planning contraception services. So their, Iowa used to have a Medicaid waiver that was called the Medicaid family planning waiver. Planned Parenthood was by far the biggest provider on that waiver. And Republicans eliminated that and created a new state-run program that excluded abortion providers. And the immediate result of that loss of state funding was that several Planned Parenthood Clinics closed. And in those areas of the state, Southeast Iowa is one of them where the Planned Parenthood Clinics closed, they've seen the, the more extreme increases in syphilis and other STIs. So it's it is it has caused real problems for access to reproductive health care of all kinds. I will say with abortion, it's a mixed picture here because we've had some more women coming from places like Missouri to get abortions in Iowa while it's still legal. But there is a lot of confusion about the legal status in Iowa and the Planned Parenthood North Central States, which is the affiliate Iowa's part of, they have seen some women from Iowa traveling to Minnesota for abortions because they're confused about whether it's still possible for them to get an abortion in Iowa. Yeah, um,
1: and they they made the legislature has now made this decision. They the governor signed it. Um, is there is this a are they reflecting? You know, a, I mean. Some people really think is should be illegal. Is that a majority of Iowans?
2: No. Now, every poll that I've seen shows a very strong majority of Iowans believe abortion should be always legal or mostly legal, and that a significant minority thinks it should be mostly or always illegal. One issue we have in Iowa, and in in some contexts – In in the past, it has been a good thing, but we're seeing the downside of it now. Iowa's Constitution is very difficult to amend, so we don't have any citizen-led ballot initiative process to pass a constitutional amendment the way you've seen in states like Ohio and and what is happening in other parts of the country. So there is no way for pro-choice reproductive rights advocates to get something on the ballot in Iowa that would protect or would establish something like the Roe v. Wade-type regime, like what was passed in Michigan let's say, last year. We just don't have any mechanism. The, re- the legislature has to approve any constitutional amendment that goes on the ballot, and our Republican-controlled legislature, of course, would never put something on the ballot that would protect reproductive rights.
1: Yeah, uh, Illinois is the same. It's uh, uh, there, there are a bunch of states that don't have uh, referendum like that. Um,
2: I mean, there are advantages to it because in California, I mean, you could say that there have been a lot of problems created by all of the measures passed by ballot initiative over the years that are now part of their constitution that that make it very difficult for them to address some basic problems like related to property taxes, for instance. So I'm not saying that it's always great to be able to change the constitution easily, but in this case, I feel very confident that if Iowans had an up or down vote on abortion, I mean, Kansas and Ohio Ohio and Kentucky, those are all states that are at least as Republican as Iowa, if not more so, and their voters all voted for the, the pro-reproductive rights position when it was on the ballot for them. And so I'm confident that Iowa would have the same result, except that we just don't have any way to get there.
1: Right. So, um, and yet you have a government that doesn't seem to care. They have a, they're, they're governing for this minority on, um, uh,
2: Right. They believe they have a mandate because they have pretty large legislative majorities and our governor won reelection by a fairly large margin. So she takes that as a referendum for everything that she wants to do. Now, I mean, we've seen in other states where Republican politicians have been elected and yet voters, when they have a chance to vote up or down on abortion rights, they strongly support abortion rights.
1: That's what happened in Ohio. Yep.
2: Yep. All right, well, it so could happen in a... Florida. They're, they're trying to get a ballot initiative going in Florida, where, of course, Ron DeSantis was reelected pretty easily. But I think that the, the pro-choice position would probably win an election in Florida. I saw something that like a one quarter of Republicans or something even supported in Florida. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I'm going to come back to Ron DeSantis when we, when we focus more on <laughs> politics and less on government. Um, look, talk about public education in the state what's you know how's it funded is it all privatized what's what do the decisions mean for public schools and in, in, in for gosh sake rural communities what is what's going on
2: we've had a really tough few years for public education in Iowa so Iowa, there is a considerable amount of state funding that goes to public schools, and then there is also property tax money. So that, that creates some inequities between school districts and well-off areas and lower-income areas. But we've seen ever since Republicans took control of the Iowa House, which was after the 2010 election, and a Republican governor, Terry Branstad that was elected at that time, we've seen public schools have just been consistently underfunded. So the increases in state funding year after year have been, you know, 1%, 2%, 2 2.5%. Of course, the school districts are dealing with rising costs that are much more significant than that, at least 4% a year. So the state funding has not kept up. And then um, our governor, our current governor, Kim Reynolds, decided to get on this train, the school voucher train, or whether you want to call it education savings accounts is now the term that they prefer, rather than vouchers. And so this year, the Republican legislature passed uh, a bill that, will basically, once it's fully implemented, the state will pay people to send their kids to private schools, and it is already having a, a very harmful impact on school districts, particularly in those rural areas where you might think that it doesn't really matter because there aren't a lot of private schools, but there are still some private schools, most mostly Christian or Catholic, in smaller town Iowa, and uh, my kids went through the Des Moines Public School District, the largest school district in Iowa. I mean, if the Des Moines public schools lose students, it's not good for the district, but they're not going to go under because of that. But a small rural district, if they lose even 10 or 15 or 20 students, I mean, they might have to cut a teacher. They might have to cut a music program or an art program or a foreign language. I mean, it is really going to be difficult. And the, the voucher plan is still, this is the first year. And so there are some income limits on it. But when it's fully Phased in in year three, there will be no income limits. The state will be creating an incentive for people, primarily people who are already well off enough to afford private school tuition. The state is going to be sending hundreds of millions of dollars a year to people to send their kids to private school. And at some point, although that's not it, it's not structured so that it directly comes out of public school funding, but you know what's going to happen when the budget is tight? There's there's no way that public schools are going to be able to get the fundraising that. The funding increases that they really need when the state is now on the hook for all this money for private schools.
1: Yep. They'll lose money as well as students. So you're going to find there are going to be communities in Iowa. And this is because they're doing this all over the country. There'll be communities in rural America where there are no public schools. And that, um, okay.
2: I mean, it's a problem already for small towns when they lose their school. Iowa has had over the last 50 years many, many mergers of school districts. And when small towns lose their school and kids have to be bused to another town, I mean, families don't want to settle there. People don't want to raise their kids where there are no schools. And so there is still a lot of pride in public schools. In Iowa, but I think it's just going to become more and more difficult for some of these smaller school districts to make it. And, but again, yeah. I don't think we'll see the full effect of this for another three or four years.
1: Yeah, but we're—you see—we're already seeing it. Okay, we've talked about uh, abortion, women's choices, and public education. We talk about labor and child labor in particular. Because um, I keep reading about kids and packing plants or kids on, on dangerous jobs, doing roofing and things like that.
2: So Iowa has a workforce shortage, and this has been an issue for a long time. Employers have said this. And, I mean, the obvious, uh, the obvious solution is pay your workers more and create more opportunities for people, especially child care. Child care is one of the biggest things keeping a lot of Iowans out of the labor force. But the Republicans who control the legislature have taken a different approach, and they've just tried to lower standards. So, you know, if we can't, if we have a teacher shortage in Iowa, let's just lower the quality. Qualifications to make it easier to hire a teacher, and with a general workforce shortage, they've made it easier for teenagers to work in certain jobs and certain fields. Longer shifts, later shifts, um, with childcare. Even they've said that teenagers can now supervise a larger number of children, three and four year olds. And so, so you know, it, it's kind of like using. I mean the. The initial draft of the child labor law wasn't as bad as what was eventually passed into law. But it's not good. I mean, it violates federal labor law in some areas. They're allowing 16 and 17 year olds to work in some dangerous occupations like roofing and uh, some, some certain jobs. I don't, I think technically they're still not going to be allowed to work in meatpacking plants. But there are definitely positions that uh, teenagers are going to be able to hold that, are that, according to the U.S. Department of Labor, is unsafe. And also, just in terms of the, the length of the shift, during the school year they'll be able to work longer shifts that go later, and during the summer, again, even longer shifts and later. So it's not going to be – and you know what is going to happen is the – Children from families who are struggling financially, they will feel more pressure to work those longer hours and that is going to adversely affect them in school. You know, I was when I was in high school, I mean I had summer jobs, but I didn't have to work. I didn't I was I did extracurriculars during the school year because I didn't have to hold down a job during the school year to keep food on the table for my family. But a lot of people are not in that situation. And so if teenagers are now able to work these really long shifts and late shifts it is going to just increase the disparities that we see in school and educational attainment.
1: Is the state, um, at least, uh, do they have a uh, an effort to enforce the laws they do have? Are they inspecting all these plants? Are they, you know, is the government doing that, or have they swept all the funds into the governor's office?
2: You know, the the... Iowa Department of Inspections and Appeals, I would say, is generally weak. I mean, we don't have (laughs) the OSHA enforcement in Iowa is weak. The nursing home inspections were, I just saw a report um, at Iowa Capital Dispatch, which is another really good online news source. They did a report on how Iowa is 49th in the country in terms of nursing home inspectors or the caseload for nursing home inspectors. So, I mean, generally speaking, I think like the restaurant inspections, things like that do happen, but I wouldn't say that labor law is vigorously enforced in Iowa. And one of the biggest issues that labor unions have been calling attention to, and some uh, progressive organizations, there's a think tank called Common Good Iowa that has been doing research on this for more than a decade, is wage theft. Just an enormous problem in Iowa. And of course, uh, often affecting um, lower wage workers, uh, undocumented immigrants, um, people, uh, shift workers, and you just can't get anybody in, in state government interested in enforcing or, or prosecuting people over wage theft. I don't think the Iowa Attorney General's Office has ever prosecuted a wage theft case. And if if they're if the employers are caught, I mean, the, the punishment is then they have to pay their employees the wages that they were owed. Well, that's not a real punishment. I mean, that's just like the cost of doing business. I mean, they can just continue stealing money. And it's always interesting to me that these so-called tough-on-crime Republicans don't care about wage theft that's stealing hundreds of millions
1: of dollars from iowans a year okay abortion public education labor what about the environment i, I had on the show a while ago a fabulous uh, uh professor who just shared appalling information about um industrialized agriculture and what it's doing to the environment in, uh not just in iowa but but exporting it down the mississippi to even the Gulf, what what do you Mm -hmm. see in the
2: environment? It's a really bad picture for the environment, and I will have to say, in, in all fairness, that even when the Democrats control the legislature and the governor's mansion, it, I would say that the environmental legislation passed in the 2000s was very weak. And Tom Vilsack, after he was governor, he became Secretary of Agriculture. He's very friendly with the conventional agriculture interests, and I wouldn't say that he's hostile to the environment. But I mean, there's—I don't really see. I've never seen a lot of political will in Iowa to really make clean water an issue. Also, I have to say that air quality is an issue with some of these industrialized, um, the the confined animal feeding operations. The air quality yep. is a huge problem, and we're not doing anything about that. To, to say nothing about the fact that many of our lakes and streams are not, you know, swimmable. Or, you know, I wouldn't. I grew up swimming in lakes, but I I never took my kids to swim in a lake in Iowa. There's not one body of water in the state of Iowa that I would swim in right now. The way the the regulations are are practically non existent and what the programs that are trying to reduce runoff agricultural runoff into waterways are all voluntary. So it's just not going to work. And, and its I don't see any will for it to get better. And I'm not saying that it's not a problem in states like Minnesota and Wisconsin, but there is definitely more political will to at least do something to have regulations on, let's say, buffer strips or certain conservation practices in Minnesota that yeah. we don't have in Iowa. Uh,
1: okay. So so we could go on, but let me stop there for a minute because we've covered, you know, abortion, education, labor, the environment, the, 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 these governing decisions impact people's lives and not for the better, right? In 2018, I look back, Iowa was ranked like the best state to live in U.S. news and world report. It's mm-hmm. dropped to seventh and it's trending down. It's ranked 16th in crime, 31 on the economy, 22nd in healthcare, 21st in natural environment. All of these numbers are moving in the wrong direction. Right. And of course, there's the loss of freedom for women. I mean, looking forward.
2: And LGBTQ people, I mean, uh, are, are uh, fleeing the state because of it, uh, official discrimination by state policy. So, you know, I would say that right. Iowa is still a great place to live if you have a lot of privilege. But it is definitely uh, increasingly not a great place to live, certainly not for marginalized communities and really for lots of people who are struggling because we're <laughs> a low-wage state and, and things <sighs> – you know, and, and things are, are not
1: getting better. Yeah. And, and, and I looked at one other sort of uh, metric. The the average venture capital investment in America is $7.65 per capita. I mean, the average across states, $7.65 mm. $7. per capita. In Iowa, it's 76 cents. Oh, so that's the, the, interesting. The, so, so when you look at, like, what kind of a future is being built in Iowa, the answer is none.
2: And it's it And now I'm thinking back to, this is a controversy that I covered way back in the late 2000s, but the Democratic governor had like an infrastructure bonding initiative to try to, you know, wait, interest rates were low, and let's there was the Great Recession, and it's like, let's borrow some money and build some great things and create jobs right away and also build some great lasting infrastructure. And Republicans just went, I mean, they went bananas over that. I mean, that would, like a lot of people would say, business people would say, yeah, you know, borrow money and invest it in your business and that is going to pay off. But I would say that Iowans are not big on making long-term investments so I'm not surprised that that venture capital rate is very low. But also we have an aging population and a workforce shortage and that, that's just a problem. It, it's not—it's no secret and everybody knows really what's causing it, but somehow, you know, Republicans I mean, they're, they're always thinking that the next, if they just pass the next tax cut around the corner that, you know, people are going to flock to Iowa. They're going to compare the marginal tax rate and move to Iowa for that reason. Uh That's not going to happen.
1: No. All right. So in a normal democracy, in a normal democracy, a government that delivers these terrible results would be replaced. But that isn't what's going on, because we seem to and this is really where I want to understand more deeply. We seem to have swapped out the idea of Governance and outcomes of governance for some kind of weird identity signaling. And the Iowans seem to identify with MAGA and Donald Trump more than they care about whether their lives are getting better or worse.
2: I would say, I would phrase it a little bit differently. I would say that the The conservative Fox News talk radio machine, which is very dominant in most Iowa communities, we don't have any progressive commercial talk radio in Iowa. I mean, that just does not exist at all. So a lot of Iowans are listening 365 days a year to radio that's telling them that Democrats are elitist and they hate your religion and they want to, you know, caravans coming over the border or whatever, transgender bathrooms, whatever it is, the culture war issue that they want people to focus on instead of the fact that, yeah, has your town, have things in your town gotten better under this Republican trifecta? Probably not, but let's talk about you know whatever outrage of the day. Uh, But I would say that, that generally what's happened in Iowa, and I think we have talked about this maybe on one of my previous shows, it's really a demographic issue. There has been a change, not just in Iowa, but nationally. There has been kind of a shifting of the coalition. So the Democratic Party is much more the party of college educated people white people at least and the the Republican party has gained tremendous support among white voters without a college education so and I don't want to just say working class more broadly because I still think the working class voters still generally prefer Democrats nationally but among white working class voters Republicans have really made big gains. And the bulk of the Iowa electorate is white voters without a college degree. So whereas in some states, like in Minnesota, you've seen a change where the suburbs have trended blue and then areas that used to be solid blue, like the Iron Range area of Minnesota, those areas have trended red. But overall, they have a large population in the Twin Cities area. So the state still tilts in the blue column. Iowa just doesn't have any major metro area of that size. So if you put together all of the urban and suburban voters in Iowa, it's just, it's nothing even approaching half the state's population. So we just have a lot. So that's one of the issues that we have. And so until something changes nationally, that the Democrats are able to find a way to appeal more to white voters without a college degree, it's going to be really hard for Democrats to come back in Iowa. And I do think that the... Information space is a big part of
1: that. I do too. And that leads me to um, wanting to talk to you about, because I, I agree with you as you've identified the demographic problem and that you have placed it as an information problem and that people have been lied to. I mean, the, the outcomes that we spoke about are terrible for white working class people. Absolutely. So they've replaced it with something else, right? So 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 if we care about... These folks got to tell them the truth. And one area where I know, like, you worked hard to make sure people knew the truth. Um, Iowa starting line worked hard to make sure people knew the truth was about the people trying to take over school boards all over the state. Oh, yeah. And, oh, my gosh. In Iowa, the MAGA crowd, the Moms for Liberty crowd that tried to take over the school boards got crushed. And that gives me that- some
3: talk about. <laughs> I-
2: I haven't been able to report some really good election news out of Iowa for a while. So I was really pleased to see that. We've had, so technically school board races in Iowa are nonpartisan, but increasingly the last few cycles, they've become partisan adjacent, I would say. So clearly there will be, if there are three school board seats up for election, there will often be six candidates running, and three of them are clearly the Moms for Liberty MAGA type people, and three of them will be endorsed by the teachers union or you know public school advocates are supported by local Democrats. Type people. And we've had in in many years ago, uh, my mother served on the school board actually here, Uh, you know, school board elections used to be really just more about individuals and they really didn't have a partisan tinge at all, but that has changed a lot in the last decade. And so now you really see more and more often you see like the whole slate winning one side or the other. And in 2021 in our school board elections, it was a real mixed bag with the conservative candidates doing well in some races and not well in others. But this time, I mean, it was really all over the state, not just in the Des Moines area and suburbs, but from Council Bluffs on the Missouri River to Mason City way up in the Northeast. I mean, really the, the progressive slash you know teachers union supported candidates were just sweeping these school board races, including in some districts Linmar, which is a district in the Cedar Rapids suburbs that Republicans even nationally have targeted. Our governor has targeted them and Mike Pence and other people criticized them because they had a transgender-inclusive policy. And it was kind of strange because their policy was not really any different from probably what 20 other Iowa school districts had. But for some reason, Linmar became a real focus for conservatives about this woke agenda. And yet the progressive slate swept the school board elections in Linmar as well. And I thought it was really funny after the election, some of the Iowa Republicans tried to come up with this spin like, oh, it was just our voters were just too distracted with the presidential race and they just didn't turn out to vote. I I really don't think so. I think that it's actually an advantage. Usually if you have presidential candidates pounding the pavement, that gets voters more engaged with the political process generally. I think that turnout was up because a lot of people didn't like this book banning, discriminating agenda, and uh, they wanted to send a message. So, I mean, I, I think it was very clear. I don't know whether that is going to translate into Gains for Democrats is this coming November? because of course, turnout in a presidential election is so much higher than in a school board election. But I was very, very encouraged by what happened in the school board races across the state of Iowa last month.
1: I, I um, uh, congratulations about that. but I, I, I want to go back. I think one of the reasons for that was that it, the effort made to get around the information deficit. Um, there were a lot of people. Uh, not just sort of trying to tell the truth about people running in school board races, but it was very active on social media. People were finally hearing what they don't hear, what they only tune into the radio.
2: And And school board candidates
1: are... That's interesting.
2: It is. And school boards, school districts are small enough, generally, at least in Iowa, that candidates can really reach a large number of the voters by just going door-to-door, literally. I mean, the successful school board candidates would knock hundreds or thousands of doors, and of course, it's a low-turnout election, so if they're working off a list of these are the people who usually vote in local or school board races, they have a pretty good chance of talking face-to-face. And I did hear anecdotally, a few weeks before the election, uh, Keenan Crow, who works for the advocacy organization One Iowa, it's an LGBTQ equality uh, uh, organization, they were on a panel And and Keenan was saying that their candidates—they endorsed school board candidates for the first time this year in Iowa. They had never done that before. But the legislature passed so many discriminatory laws, whether it's the "Don't Say Gay or Trans" for K through six, bathroom bill for schools. They felt that it was very important to elect. Inclusive school board members, and their candidates were saying that when they were knocking on doors and saying you know hello i'm so and so i 'm running for the school board, a lot of times people would say you 're not one of those book banners, are you or you book that the book banning in particular very, very unpopular, and I think that that was something that resonated for a lot of candidates and and at, before the election, when I heard Keenan say that I thought, well, you know who knows that could just be an anecdote, but I think it 's clear now that the Moms for Liberty type candidates did poorly almost everywhere that they were running. And that is just not an agenda that the majority of people are behind.
4: Okay,
1: so let's zoom out a little bit. Um, What does it mean that your governor endorsed Ron DeSantis? I told you we'd go back to him. And and like (laughs) that seems like lose, lose, lose.
2: It really is. I have to say, I have yet to talk to anybody in either party who thinks that was a smart decision for Kim Reynolds to endorse Ron DeSantis. I wasn't surprised in one sense because her former chief of staff and a very senior political strategist, who she's very close to started working for the Never Back Down super PAC. That's like the super PAC that's basically running Ron DeSantis' Iowa campaign. He started working for them in April. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, okay, she's probably going to endorse Ron DeSantis. I mean, she's tried to copy a bunch of his policies before, right? Don't say gay, transgender sports ban. So it was clear that even earlier in the year when she was saying that she was trying to remain neutral, she obviously had a preference for Ron DeSantis. But then he tanked so badly in the polls, I thought, well, maybe she's not going to put her clout on the line like that, because honestly, it's not that smart. I mean, most people, most Iowa caucus goers do not care about endorsements at all. So I, I, have, I can't even think of an example of any endorsement that really moved the needle for someone. So I think it is a lose-lose decision. And when, one thing I'm very curious about is whether it will affect the governor's ability to get some of her agenda passed during the upcoming legislative session. We, our legislators are coming back to work in January. And about 42, I think, Republican legislators have endorsed DeSantis and around 20 have endorsed Trump. And I'm just wondering if there's going to be any bad blood between those groups. I mean, Donald Trump at every Iowa event, well, really at every event anywhere, but at every Iowa event, he just is he's skewering, uh, ridiculing DeSantis, you know, with a name calling and also kind of making fun of our governor now. So, I mean, it it really I don't think. That I don't think DeSantis really gained anything from it, and I think that the governor is going to lose. And by the way, if anybody outperforms their poll numbers in the Iowa caucuses, I think it would be Trump, because I really do believe he is bringing new people into the process who weren't involved with Republican Party activism in the past, but are just kind of part of his cult following. And these people are very committed and I believe will show up on a cold Monday night in January.
1: Hmm. Yep. Well, you know, Iowa, in the popular imagination, I expect in the eyes of many of its residents, is you know, long on traditional American values, hard work, patriotism, thrift, common decency, community. And if there's something, anything in that, how do, how do they square that with standing up for a guy like Donald Trump, you know, multiply indicted is certainly not decent or kind, um, but outright cool. How do they, how do they do that?
2: I talk with people about this a lot around Iowa. I've been I've d- d- done more events this past year around the state and especially when I'm in smaller communities. So these are I'm mostly not exclusively but mostly speaking with Democrats and in a lot of these smaller towns these are conservative areas. So these are Democrats who have lived for most of their lives or all of their lives in a pretty republican city or county. And one thing I've heard from many of them is that Things have gotten a lot meaner under Trump. I mean, people are saying it's it's very in-your-face. People are more rude. I mean, some people will have banners or signs in their yard that say F Biden. I mean, that's just kind of weird, right? I mean, I remember Jimmy Carter was very unpopular, right? But people didn't walk around wearing a T-shirt that said, you know, F Jimmy Carter. I mean, it's just a, it's a bizarre Thing. And I don't know. I do think, again, the talk radio contributes to that aspect of the culture and Fox News and even Newsmax, right? Because now, I mean, there are things that are even more right-wing and extreme than Fox News these days. And I, I do think that something has changed with the culture. And I hear that. I just hear that a lot from Iowans, that they're, they're just feeling... I even somebody told me that she distributes the Democratic yard signs in her little town. And there were people who had always displayed yard signs in the past, and they didn't want to in 2022. And it's not because they weren't supporting the Democratic candidates, but they were literally afraid that somebody would come vandalize their house, which is just bizarre.
1: Well, I I mean, it's really sad. It's very sad. um, There's all this talk. The, the news media in the last couple of weeks has been up in arms about the idea of, of censorship in colleges in America. Mm-hmm. And it's tied to the Israel-Palestine fight, but it, goes, it predates that. Oh, mm-hmm. my gosh, there's, the, the, the left is censoring everybody. But I hear right. from you and from others across the country that people are afraid to put a political yard sign on their own property, in their own house, because of intimidation from their boorish neighbors.
2: Well, and, I mean, and that, who's censoring? Because, I mean, hundreds of books have been pulled from the shelves in Iowa schools because of a law Republicans passed this year that says that books that have contain a description or visual depiction of a sex act Cannot be in in school classrooms or libraries. So, like, who's really censoring whom? Nobody was being forced to read any of these books. They were available in the school library for students to check out. So, you know, I I object to the idea that liberals are the ones uh, somehow censoring people's speech.
1: Yeah, I mean, particularly our young, we can be as intolerant as anybody else. But not using the force of law or threats of violence to tell people to shut up. Right. Um, yeah. Um, well, that's really interesting. So so I have a sense that truth will out. And no matter what people are hearing on the radio all the time, when the outcomes of governing continue to be that there's sort of a decline and life gets harder and uh, this, you have to send your kids further for school and you can't swim in the local lakes, for gosh mm-hmm. sakes, at some point people are going to say – You know, maybe, you know, maybe we've been lied to. Maybe this is the wrong way to go. I mean, it it happens and Americans wake up and they've always woken up when they're, you know, when power and privilege pushes them around too much. And I just think this year we've we've gotten to that point and your school board elections are like canaries in the coal mine.
2: And it definitely could be true, and I have talked to old-timers in Iowa politics who remember times when the Democratic Party was way down, kind of the way it is now, and they say, yeah, that it, things can come back, and certainly public schools could be an animating issue for that, especially if, if the school voucher plan starts to really create hardship in rural areas. I mean, they're, they're, it's, on the other hand, the right is really good at creating scapegoats and making people think that if their life isn't better – it's who who knows what they think, right? The government is giving your money to black or brown people, or you know whatever reason I mean I'm amazed that uh, President Biden doesn't get more credit for the strong recovery here. I mean, yes, we had inflation as did every Western country following the pandemic, but inflation has actually been lower here and has come down faster, and unemployment is in better shape here than in many Western countries, and yet that's not the perception that the right wing ecosphere is creating, right? They're making it sound like uh, Biden made things uniquely horrible here.
1: Yeah, I know. Um, But, you know, this coming year, when we start to campaign and we start to tell the unbelievable story of what Democrats and Joe Biden have accomplished, some of it's going to break through. And they're going to remember that Donald Trump said he had the best economy in the world and he didn't, or that he was going to do infrastructure and he didn't, or that he had right. a replacement for health care and he didn't. Right. Um, or yeah. that his children were making millions of dollars from foreign governments and they had big jobs in the government. Are you kidding oh, yeah. me? Boy, yeah. it'll all come out. And I just think decent people are going to run for the cover after they nominate
3: him.
2: Well, yeah, he's definitely going to get the nomination, and I I think none of us know how any of these criminal cases are going to play out next year. I think that that is going to be, I mean, he may succeed in getting things delayed, but that, I mean, there definitely will be swing voters turned off by that, by the fact that he's under indictment and and possibly by next fall convicted of one or more felonies. All
1: right, Laura, I've got a minute and a half of your time left, and i and I just want to ask you something has nothing to do with politics, but how about taking a second and telling us about the Iowa Writers' Cooperative?
2: Oh, yeah, thanks. So Julie Gamick really spearheaded this initiative. She was a longtime columnist for the Des Moines Register way back in the '80s and '90s, and the decline in editorial commentary and opinion pages in Iowa newspapers is really extreme and so she got together a group of writers I started out to be just a few of us now there are more than 40 we all have newsletters on Substack we all provide free content with most of us I think have paid subscription options but things are available for free so I cover politics of course but people are covering all kinds of different things food, sports culture, lots of different topics and the Iowa Writers Collaborative of, there's a Sunday morning roundup that links to all of our different columns every Sunday so that people can pick and choose and see what they like and what they're interested in. And it's it has been a good way. Some, some papers have picked up some of our content from that. I think the idea was to create a lot of commentary and material that would be available to Iowa newspapers that have been suffering from smaller newsrooms and d- smaller pa- fewer pages to cover news. And so we're less than two years old and, and and we're growing, and I think it's it's been an interesting experiment. But um, I'm, I'm happy to be part of it. My newsletter is called Iowa Politics with Laura Bellin. but I, I only publish a couple of times a week on Substack, whereas on my main website, Bleeding Heartland, I'm putting up new material just about every day.
1: So, so for any of you interested in Iowa, you should look at the Iowa Writers Cooperative. I have, and I think it's pretty interesting. Well, Laura, we're not going to talk again before the year's out. Have a very happy holiday. I hope you have time with your family and rest up because next year is going to be a wild ride.
2: Oh yeah, and, and the Iowa legislature will be back the second week in January, so I'll be here documenting the atrocities. But right. <laughs> have a good holiday season and a happy new year.
1: You too. Bye. All right, Thank everybody, you. we're going to break. We're going to break for the news, and uh, Jill Lawrence is joining us when we come back. You don't want to miss it.
0: You're listening to the big picture with Edwin Eisenfrau on WCPT 820.
1: Okay, welcome back, everybody. It's a little bit after two o'clock here in the Midwest, and Jill Lawrence is joining me again. As you know, she is a longtime opinion writer, book author, real sort of fabulous observer and thinker about our country, how the government works, and how it doesn't work these days, she sort of helped us really understand what's going on. I'm thrilled to have her back. Hi, Jill.
3: Hi, Edwin. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Your um, latest, is as always, is fabulous. The lessons drawn sort of from Comparing the efforts to hold Trump accountable through the legal system and the efforts to punish Biden by launching an impeachment investigation, putting them side by side is, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous and and great to talk about.
3: <laughs> well, the contrast is uh, almost unavoidable. I mean, things just seem to happen within minutes and hours of each other every day of the week these days. Yep. You know what I'm saying? It's... um. um It's unfortunate that uh, that we have to deal with it. But I think the more we talk about it, the better off we are.
1: I do, too. So let's talk about it. Um, Okay. I mean, Hunter, I mean, oh, my gosh, he stands. He says, "Uh, yes. okay, I want to testify. Oh, no, we didn't mean it. We, We want you to come in there so we can lie about you later.
3: That seems to be the only conclusion you can draw. I mean, why not let the guy testify in public?
1: Right. It's, I mean, uh, he under might oath be too, too. Yeah. So they've launched an investigation upset? predicated on nothing. These are the same guys, just—and you know this—but these are the same guys, right, who actually hired, uh, empowered a special prosecutor to spend years and a fortune going after the Justice Department and the FBI, pretending that the Russia investigation began without predication. And and of course, that's John Durham's work. And he ended up finding, oh, you know what? Nope, wrong. There is no wrongdoing here.
3: You know, one of the things that I don't think people focus on, and I'm not sure there's any way to really put a price tag on it, but how much taxpayer money are we now spending on this cycle of? You know, tit for tat investigations, investigating every investigation and then investing, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's just like nothing is ever the final word and everything is suspicious. Everything comes under suspicion. Even something as clear as the fact that there were meetings with Russia by the Clinton, by the I'm sorry, by the Trump campaign, and and that according to Michael Cohen, his fixer, he he lied about whether he was pursuing a Trump Tower in Moscow. You know, it's just an astonishing situation, um, and I'm not sure whether we'll ever get to past our investigations and investigations of investigations.
1: Yeah, we will. My sorry, I'm supposed. Many okay. Questions. Good. It'll be done. I mean, Joe. Um, <laughs> they, they, like this week, we learned that that um, that this ten-inch-thick binder, right, that that had uh, all kinds of information, highly classified information on Russian election interference, that in the waning hours of the Trump administration, it disappeared, and we still don't know where it is, right? Um, I like, guess right. in Moscow, do they trade it for a tower? I mean, it's just—it's insane to think these are the guys who pilloried Hillary over a couple emails and supposed national security problems. It's—it's it, it's past hypocrisy.
3: Well, it's dangerous. I mean, people can die over things like this. That—that's yes. one of the things that gets me so upset about all of it. Um, just that. Uh, You know, there are human costs, there are taxpayer costs, there are costs of trust in our government, not just by people who disagree with its policies, but by allies who can't trust us with their intelligence anymore. You know, within the first four months of his administration, Trump was filling secrets. In the Oval Office, two high-level Russians, and the way that we know this, uh, well, the way that we knew that the meeting occurred was because there was a task photographer in there, and um, no American photographers were allowed in. So you know, it just kind of started at the beginning, and it's never stopped.
1: Yeah, this was and the disgrace I, I do have a lot of Sergey Lavrov in the Oval Office,
3: right? Absolutely
1: right. appalling. <sighs>
3: That's a phrase that I don't know. Where do you go beyond absolutely appalling?
1: Well, I, we, Americans have to, and are um, catching on. You know, we're all of us are in a bit of a lather because Donald Trump is going to be like the is very likely to be the Republican nominee, um, and, but that doesn't make him popular. I mean, we have to take a step back, take a deep breath, and remember that Republicans are a shrinking crowd because lots of decent people who are conservatives want nothing to do with them anymore. Um, So he's popular in in Republican circles, but he's lost. I mean, you know, Liz Cheney isn't alone, being a deep conservative who's disgusted by them. Um, And and so, uh, and there are a lot of people who aren't Democrats who aren't going over that way. I mean, the growth of of Swing left and indivisible, and you name it—the thousands of organizations that have, you know, the Women's March. Just these aren't all Democrats. I mean, people who voted in uh, in all of these referenda and state after state after state on abortion restrictions—these aren't all Democrats. But they're, they're not going to support Donald Trump.
3: Well, I mean, you could look at the polling and be nervous, and a lot of Democrats are. You could look at some of the swing state polling and also the national polling. But I do think that we have hardly begun to fight in, uh, on the side against Trump. You know, there are just a lot of uh, issues and there's a lot of money that hasn't been stunk in yet. And the choice I think is going to become more and more clear as Jack Smith ramps up. And I, maybe it's um, foolish to have so much faith in this guy, but Look, you know, he prosecuted international criminals, and so now he's, he's uh, not cowed Prosecuting by Prosecuting an international any... criminal. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. I, <laughs> um, I wouldn't go that far, but he certainly understands the import of what he's trying to do and the import of speed. And, and you know, at direct cross-purposes with Trump, who needs to get into the White House in order to kill all the cases against him and stay out of jail— And and he knows he needs to get, uh, you know, at least one trial over and done with and maybe even two to show voters that this is not the kind of person you want in the White House. So, you know, it's going to
1: be. I'm sorry. While he's doing that and he's going to do it, the rest of us have a job to do in explaining the remarkable accomplishments um, of the government in the last couple of years. I mean, I you know. I remember COVID, and I remember the chaos that this administration inherited, um, you know, the inability to pull together, you know, to get PPE to hospitals, you know, oh, we're going to do it. Oh, no, the states should do it. And it took, what, a couple of weeks before the Biden administration figured out how to get shots in everybody's arms and got going and proved that America can do things again. I mean, the accomplishments are real, and we can talk about those, too.
3: Yeah, we we should, Um, and I mean, I guess one of the things that's tough to do is is try to make people understand how valuable it is to have someone like Biden in the White House when Russia invades Ukraine or Hamas, you know, stages an attack on Israel, and someone who can do crisis management with a sure hand, which was not the case with Trump and COVID. Uh, You know, he was pitting states against each other to get get the supplies they needed. And, and he let his party start badmouthing his greatest accomplishment of, of vaccines. And that caused a lot of excess deaths. So, you know, it, he hasn't proven himself. And uh, I just hope that we can get through. And, you know, maybe the thing that gets through is the stock market in 401ks or the price of gas or something. But hopefully something gets through by the time it's time. Yeah, I think a lot will
1: because America actually doing pretty well, and that you know the th- the areas where we aren't still have to do with the inequalities that have built up since nineteen eighty, and that, that 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 is something that we're finally addressing, but Donald Trump won't address. What would he have done? Certainly, he would not have. If, uh, on you you raised Ukraine. And Israel, Gaza, I'm just trying to imagine, in in your imagination, what what does he do? He lets Russia eat Ukraine. I think that one is pretty clear um, because he's wanted to turn his back on Ukraine forever.
3: But would he be, would America have let him? Would would Congress have let him? Would NATO have let him? I mean, that's the question. Well, he
1: pretended that he wasn't. But, you know, it takes an extraordinary effort. To stop to to do what Joe Biden did, so he could have pretended that he was doing it, but he he wouldn't have made that effort.
3: I think you're right. Um, I think that's what some what people done- want. I mean, the, the the person that everyone is kind of marveling at the transformation is J D. Vance, senator from Ohio. Um, you know, what on earth is he thinking? I don't know. But this is not the time for America to say, "Okay, Russia, you rule the world," or "Okay, China." I mean, to be so tough on China and just disregard the potential of Russia as a disruptive force, um, you know, globally. But starting in Ukraine and Europe, it's um, it's beyond. You know, I have a long history of covering Republicans, and and this is really shocking to me.
1: Well, I what's really you, you know, you know this. Better than anyone, but we should say it out loud a hundred times. This is not; these are not Republicans. They're, they're, they're. They've taken over the Republican Party, right? This MAGA crowd. But it is not; and it doesn't bear a resemblance to a conservative party that used to be the Republicans.
3: Yeah, you know, I, in a way, what's happened is a tremendous failure of imagination and understanding because. You know, if you listen to what Paul Ryan was uh, was saying in a video that was released this past week, people didn't vote for that second impeachment or the second uh, impeachment trial conviction because they thought that surely after January 6th, he was dead as a public figure. And so they could, you know, if they were going to vote to convict him, for instance, and only 10 extra senators were needed, uh, seven Republicans did vote for it and and only 10 more were needed. You know, if you voted for it, you'd be primaried and probably defeated in the next election. If you voted for it, you might even get death threats. You know, your wife might even get death threats or husband might be attacked. We've seen all these things happen. And so, you know, they took the safe route because they thought, how could he possibly come back from this? And yet, here he is. So, you know, I think... Want, I, don't,
1: I don't give them a pass. You, you, you're you a United uh, States senator uh, with a chance to say, on the record, what happened in January 6th was a crime and the person in charge should not should, should be sanctioned at the highest possible level and you walked away from that. And now a couple of years later, oh, gee, I should have, maybe I regret it. I'm sorry. That's
3: an apology well, I can't accept. I, no, I'm not, I'm not accepting any apologies, and I think they were wrong, <laughs> yeah. and I was shocked at what – I mean, Mitch McConnell could have gotten – he could have set the example to vote on conscience and get this guy out of their lives, but I, I don't know. I mean, I think part of it was that they were realizing that some of the policies that they had long assumed were supported by their people actually weren't. And that started being shown in so many different ways. You know, for instance, in Florida, when you whenever you have a, a, a referendum on, you know, raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars, or restoring the vote to felons, or you know, things like that, um, it, it passes. And now they're going to have an abortion rights and abortion access referendum. Apparently, they're yep. about ready to finish up those signatures. So, you know, and these things have been passing and Medicaid expansions have been passing when people are voting directly. And uh, Trump kind of had a good populist um, pitch, which wasn't exactly uh, true to how he governed, if you can call it that. I mean, he went with the Republican traditional tax breaks for the rich type thing, and, and he never got the infrastructure compromise he wanted. He never even went for the immigration compromise that Senate Republicans were working on. You know, he never he never delivered on a lot of that populist idea, I, I saw him bragging about all the money he gave to farmers. Uh, it's because they lost so much when they lost their Chinese markets in the trade war. I mean, you know, he had to, he had to basically make them whole and, and hand out money. So, you know, it's just, it's he's not serving the people he said he would, but I think it's been kind of a wake-up call, particularly since the repeal of Dobbs, how out of step they are. And that may have contributed in, in, to you know, part of the reason they don't want to completely separate from Trump. Yeah, maybe. He's got a lot of the base, such as it is. It's a maybe good not theory. The He's definitely he got the base.
1: the base. He's got the base. Yeah. But that base and, and but- that path will destroy us. Um, I got to ask you just to take a step back because we're, this is the last time we're talking this year. And like, how is how are we different than we were a year ago? You know, what was, well, and, and while you're while you're telling me that, like, what was the most astounding thing of this year, and what sort of scared you, and what gave you comfort?
3: Well, these are different categories than I was given to prepare for, but. <laughs> I think I can handle it. Um, The thing that surprised me the most was the power of abortion rights as a political issue, even in red states, even among Republicans. And the more we hear these personal stories, uh, I just have to hand it to the people who are brave enough. You know, Kate Cox, who went to court and, uh, you know, in the middle of a medical crisis, And made herself the face of the cruelty of these policies and, and, you know, the sadism almost. Uh, It's just, you know, it's it's beyond belief. And then when I uh, wrote a piece about the problems with bans of any length, there were four women who had had terrible complications in in a Texas lawsuit on this. And the next time I checked in, there were 20 women who had signed on to this lawsuit and two doctors and just the sort of exodus of people from, you know, exodus of doctors and gynecologists and obstetricians in particular, and surgeons from the States that are criminalizing procedures that save people's lives or their ability to have future kids. So it's, um, you know, that's just been amazing. And it's it's one of the difficult, difficult conditions that Republicans will be running under next year. I mean, the other thing that I was shocked at was Kevin McCarthy reaching a debt deal with Joe Biden. I mean, tell me that didn't surprise you. And, and basically knowing it might kill his career, and and, and it certainly did. Um, I think the next astounding thing might be if uh, – If Mike Johnson goes along with it, too, with the top line numbers they agreed to on the budget, which would prevent, hopefully, a government shutdown or two. So that's, you know, those are things that were surprising and actually, I mean, you know, terrible in the sense of the people who are being hurt by the abortion bans. But um, interesting and, and good in the mobilization it's bringing of people thinking well, Alexandra Petri, the humor columnist for the Washington Post, as she put it. Who knew that uh, "I don't care if you die" is not a good campaign slogan?
4: Yeah, really.
3: Um, I think so, they. What they, were your they, other questions?
1: Well, I just it's you know we're, we're I think we're different now than we were a year ago, and and I, and then one of the differences I see, and I want to get your take, is I think ordinary Americans have begun the process of saying. I see you to the Republicans. I see who you really are. I don't want you messing with my school board. I don't like it when you ban my books. I mean, I think I think it the the I think they've run their course. And I just think that the reaction to the reactionaries, if you will, is it has begun. And I think we're that and, and I think we're in a different place than we were a year ago.
3: I mean, Democrats I think that's a
1: string right. of
3: victories In, this year. Right. The reality on the ground has been pretty good for Democrats. But I think you're right that that the, it has begun. The backlash has begun. The realization that what they're selling people don't want has begun. I'm not sure that it's run its course. Um, we do see people winning school boards. We see people being activated because they don't like what's happening. And, and the scandals don't help either. I mean, when the Moms for Liberty founder, ends up, you know, in in this, not exactly in the law. Threesome with a potential really. rapist? Yeah. yeah. Yes. You know, her husband's yeah. a potential rapist, and she's in a threesome with the woman who's making the accusation. You know, this is uh, not a good look. Not, it kind of destroys the narrative. But I think it it, went, it's... With Jim you know, and Tammy Faye that. all over again. Yeah, really. Um, it's always the ones you never expect, right? Except we do now. Um it's uh, so people are winning school board seats, even just around here in Virginia. They're winning school board seats, running against book bans and running, you know, uh, for diversity, essentially. Um, and well, in, pluralism.
1: In, in, in Virginia, where you are, there is your governor all poised to be, you know, right there. Maybe the guy who steps up if Trump falters and he got astoundingly beaten in the in a election.
3: Well that's true. I must say I'm in the district. I live in the district, so I, I don't vote for really anything, but <laughs> I do take a lot of I do pay a lot of attention to what goes on. So um yeah, that was a big rebuke to him. And I think that uh, that's what we've seen, you know, that's what we saw in Kentucky where Um, Andy Beshear got reelected governor. And, you know, any place, any place Democrats had a chance to win, they did. So that was a a very good thing. Now, the polls are the polls. But I do think that, you know, either way, whether it's the January 6th trial or the Mar-a-Lago trial, there'll be saturation coverage of Trump either as trying to subvert an election or or it's just giving away. National security secrets that could kill people in other countries and and kill our spies and and the spies of other countries and just completely irresponsible threat to American security. So, you know, either one of those things would be I think there are polls that actually show that people would change their minds, that they wouldn't vote for him if he were convicted so there's a lot riding on what happens with the legal system and the Supreme Court, to be honest. You know, it hasn't covered itself in glory recently, and it's hard to trust it. But that said, it did get rid of all the the fraud lawsuits that were, you know, had no proof, had no, had no evidence. So maybe we can trust it to get us moving on some of these lawsuits and trials.
1: Well, I mean, Joe, the fact that you're watching them as carefully as you are and sharing that with the country is one of the reasons. You know, people behave differently when they can't hide. I mean, the Supreme Court has behaved differently after Dobbs, in part because of the enormous attention. I mean, they've they've had a couple of voting rights cases that I am certain they didn't like the way they voted. But I think they were afraid to go down the road they've been going down.
3: I, I think maybe. I mean, they're certainly not unaware of how they're perceived. I mean, there's been a lot of terrific investigation of who's been paying for what in their lives. Some of the justices. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you could say Leonard Leo You know who he is. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, and they also, yes, they're being paid by Leonard Leo and those guys, and everybody knows it. But they're also, when you check their popularity, right, they are less trusted mm-hmm. than the Chicago City Council. And believe me, as a Wait, graduate there, of that city that council, true? I think that's an amazing thing.
3: <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, maybe this is the low point, but I just don't know how they fix it because their attempt at self-policing did not get a warm reception and it doesn't seem to do anything substantive uh first of all i don't see any disclosures of of you know voluntary disclosures of anything but on top you know when
1: the man's wife is you know one of the plotters and these cases are well coming. there's
3: that yeah uh, well i want to talk about stuff that actually has encouraged me if i if we have a minute
1: yes please
3: Okay, well, if the economy is really doing well, I mean, you know, the, uh, the stock market's out of record, inflation is down, unemployment is near record lows. It's just, it, you know, wages have been continuing to go up. It's, it's a good situation. We need more housing, but mortgage rates will probably go down next year because they're not going to be raising interest rates. They're going to be lowering them. So, I mean, I think we're on a good trend. And also a lot of the health care things that the Democrats passed are going to kick in limits on um, on out-of-pocket expenditures for older people like myself. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. also, yep. um, and, and also and um, also uh, prescriptions costing less in Medicare because there are some negotiations with pharmaceutical companies that, of course, Republicans tried to stop. So so that'll start kicking in. Then also, Trump has done so many things that that have whipped Biden into action, uh, bragging about getting Roe v. Wade repealed, um, bragging that he's going to try again to repeal the Affordable Care Act um you know, bragging that he's only going to be a dictator on day one and all of the leaks about all the things he's going to do. This has really kind of kicked that campaign and the DNC into action And with a lot of, you know, if you're on a lot of press release lists, you find you're bombarded and usually it's one sided, but it's now two sided. And we're hearing from Democrats more, which is I think can only help Joe Biden. And the one other thing I would say is these verdicts um, against defamation and disinformation are spectacular. Uh, the Dominion verdict against Fox, the the two women, uh, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss in Atlanta against Giuliani. The message is being sent. You cannot do this with impunity. You cannot ruin people's lives um, and get away with it. You're going to pay.
1: So you didn't mention Jean Carroll and Donald Trump in that
3: list. Oh, that too, right? Yeah. Right? No. Right? Yeah. That didn't affect all of us, but she certainly deserved justice, and she I think she got it.
1: Well, and he was, and the verdict said he was um, a, a rapist and b a, a slanderer.
3: So, right, yeah. right. Yeah, no, that was amazing. That one has already. I mean, I've, I, I'm into the political thing, but I think that yep. that one deserves equal billing. You're right.
1: Well, Jill, um, I hope that you have a lovely holiday. That you get a little bit of rest because, again, next next year is the ride of a lifetime, and you've been at this for a while. But next year is the, is the one that next year is our 1776. You think so? I do.
3: No pressure or anything, right?
1: Right. None. Really important year.
3: All right. Well, you get rest up, too, and uh, hopefully all the voters out there and all the people who can actually organize will be mobilizing for the year to come because it's, you're right, I wish the best holidays to Jack Smith. Uh, Yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) <laughs> All right, Jill. Thank you, as always. A great Thanks, pleasure Edwin. to catch up. Bye. Bye. All right. Bye. All right, everybody. We're going to take a quick uh, quick break. And then uh, a guest we haven't had on this show before Donald Moynihan is going to join us. And that also will be terrific. Stay tuned.
0: You're looking at The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentrath on WCPT 820.
1: Okay, everybody, welcome back. And I have a real treat for you. Um, Donald Moynihan is new to the show. He is the McCourt chair of the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University, where he also co-directs the Better Government Lab. In addition to his research on government efficacy, he writes a newsletter that asks, you know, a question that is uh, terrifying and profound, can we still govern? Uh, Professor Moynihan, welcome.
5: I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Hey, um, I-, I was part of the reinventing government work during the Clinton administration and part of far too many efforts to improve and reform local government here in Chicago and Illinois. So it's a real honor to talk to you.
5: Yeah, it's it's an endless job to try and make government work a little bit better.
1: Right. I think some people don't try. <laughs> Don't try at all.
5: Yeah, yeah. And You know, you have to put your shoulders to the wheel and keep at it because I think it's sometimes easy for people to just assume uh, government's incompetent and nothing can be done as opposed to actually you know, rolling your sleeves up and figuring out what actually can be done to make government work a little better.
1: Government is hard work. I know um, I, I worked very hard during the time. It was my honor to be in the government. Um, but I know it can be effective and can really accomplish an enormous amount. I think we've created a, a fog of cynicism around, around governing, um, even at the local level. And yet people see their garbage picked up, their streets repaired, the lights are on. And, you know, every light bulb needs to be replaced. I mean, there's just work to be done at every level. And that's the obvious stuff, right? Then you have you, you, the, you get to the federal government, it gets more abstract. But there's a lot of real work that people do.
5: Yeah, I think so. And I think when you look at measures of trust in government, they tend to be highest at that local level where people can really see the tangible services and they understand the effects of those services. Whereas at the federal level, if you ask about trust in government, I think people tend to sometimes conflate uh, their this taste for politicians at the federal level with the actual work of government, it becomes a little bit harder for them to see how those services matter. Uh, there right. was a, you know, a classic moment during the Tea Party revolt after 2010 where a protester had a sign saying, keep your government hands off my Medicare, uh, which right. was like that, uh, the disjoint between people's understanding of you know, who's actually paying for this Medicare and, uh, you know, the fact that, it, that it's government um, in, a, in a way that maybe people don't always recognize the benefits, of especially federally funded public services.
1: Yeah, it's easy to confuse politics and governing. I mean, a lot of politicians confuse that, um, but they're not identical. There's an overlap, but they're not identical. Hey, before we dive into any particular issues, what made you ask that question? Can we still government? Govern? I mean, it, you know. Like, that's a question that's often asked in places like Lebanon, where the government doesn't actually control large parts of the country, or in places where there's just, you know, so little public policy expertise capable of meeting the challenges of the moment. But those aren't the threats we face. So why did you ask that question?
5: It was two things. Uh, One was the sense that American state capacity was eroding and led able to do big things and, you know, there there are a variety of people who've talked about this, um, including, say, Francis Fukuyama and Ezra Klein, and if we're looking at big ambitious policies like the Inflation Reduction Act, a lot of that hinges on state capacity at every level to do new things, like to to get um, uh, environmentally friendly buildings or uh, uh, providers of energy in place, and and that, that that requires a lot of the state. And there's the sense that maybe we are not able to do that in the way the American state was, say, 60 or 70 years ago, to take on these big ambitious projects. The second factor was, you know, really a response to Trumpism, where it, it was partly a question about, can we still govern in the context? of this populist, anti-statist uh, politics that, that Trumpism has, has really embedded in the current American uh, uh, moment. And I, I do have you know, deep and abiding concerns on both of those issues. I think the first one, there is maybe more of a, a broad based alliance to think about how can we rationally fix government services. But uh, on the latter question, the sort of populist, anti-statist approach, uh, you know, it, there's a very clear element of our politics that really just wants to damage the capacity of the state to do anything or take control of it for purely partisan purposes.
1: Those are really good, um, really good concern concerns, valid, um, frightening concerns. I, I agree with you and take comfort on the first one a little bit and even see the, um, roll out of vaccines after the complete failure on things like PPE during the crisis as a sign that we have the capability to mobilize um when we need to and, and, and government can take action that doesn't mean that we don't run into our you know our nimby problem all over the place that makes it hard to build say a new airport or runway or that, that that kind of stuff Um, is troubling, but you're right, there's a consensus that we may have gone too far to make it hard to do big things. But wow, that second one. I mean, um, what do you do about that? This idea that, you know, um, the biggest, most powerful private interests in the country um, will benefit enormously if there's not a government that says there's a public interest that's bigger than their private one. What do we do about that?
5: I think in the long run, there, there is a project that needs to take place, which is sort of a public education project about what it is that the American government does in practice. Um, I think this partly reflects the fact that we've seen decades where leaders of both political parties have run against Washington rather than explaining to the public, here's what, what our federal government actually does. And so, you know, at this point, I think most members of the public hear Washington, D.C., and they almost recoil thinking about uh, the role of the federal government. And the reality is, you know, as, as, as we've talked about, the federal government provides a lot of essential services that we rely on and the confidence of federal officials and their protections against political retribution are really essential to the quality of government, and federal employees are members of our community. You know, so for one basic statistic I, I sometimes like to share with people is that only about one in six federal employees live in the D.C. region, and there I'm including Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Um, well over 80% of federal employees live in the rest of the country, all over uh, the country. So they are
1: our neighbors uh, living in the communities wherever we are. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just just off the top of my head, and I'm just thinking of the last couple months of my life where I've encountered the federal government directly, right? I've been on an airplane. So keeping air traffic safe, federal government, otherwise it'd be chaos, Nobody would get where they're going and people would die. Um, the world is a dangerous place and obviously defense. And I think most Americans understand that. But I also visited a national park and went, you know, I went to the Grand Canyon, federal government doing its job, fabulous. And I'm an old guy and Medicare is in my life now. So, I mean, if you think about it for a little bit, we all encounter the federal government in different ways, but we all do encounter it. Um, and you're saying that we need to do a better job of explaining that. To everyone.
5: Yeah, I, I think when we, you know, we check our weather at the start of the day, we don't necessarily think about that as a federal service or one that could be damaged by politicization like that. The fact that we're relying on the National Weather Service to generate information about weather is something we don't think about. Um, but we all remember uh, during our, our hurricane season where Trump was. Manipulating uh, the maps of hurricanes with a sharpie on TV, uh, which led, you know, to pressures on people working within the National Weather Service to come up with these forecasts that aligned with uh, Trump's impromptu declaration of where the hurricane was going. So, you know, it's, it's like a simple uh, example of how here's this essential service we all rely on every day, and how quickly it can be politicized, and the science behind it can be manipulated by political leaders who are looking to to score points.
1: Well, so let's talk about the threat to politicize the government. Um, You know, I guess it's low-hanging fruit, but I got to say that when the entire House GOP uh, launches an impeachment inquiry after failing to find any predicate for such an investigation after a year and a half of looking, that pretty much gives people an example that it's all politics.
3: Yeah, and it's
5: all the more remarkable when you think that the House GOP was unable to get the same number of votes for their own budget plans, right? They, They are unable to come up with a budget plan Um, that's anything other than a continuing resolution that they all agree on. But this is the one thing they do all agree on, which is they're going to use uh, government resources to launch an impeachment campaign based on, you know, we know there's nothing fundamentally there. And this sort of issue has been looked at fairly closely over the last couple of years. Um, So it, it is a measure of how much, um, To use their own terminology, they are willing to weaponize government. They have set up one one of the most extraordinary ironies when you think about politics. They've set up this weaponization subcommittee within the House whose primary purpose is not really to investigate weaponization of government for political purposes, but to actually engage in weaponization of government for those same purposes.
1: Yeah, every, just from my perspective, every time one of these MAGA guys gets up and makes a statement, he's making an admission about what he's doing himself. It's the, it's like looking in the mirror and then lying. It's a, just a very strange thing. But uh, they're weaponizing government, which gets me to Schedule F, which I have not talked to my audience much about. But will you tell everybody about Schedule F? What it is? What Donald Trump did? What Uh, Joe Biden did when he first took office and why this is so terrifying.
5: Absolutely. And so a little little background is needed here to understand this. Um, In American federal government, you have two classes of employees. Uh, One of them are political appointees and uh, the the rest, the vast majority are career civil servants. So we have about four thousand political appointees in place at any one time. Um, and we have a couple of million career civil servants. What Schedule F is intended to do is to allow American presidents to vastly increase the number of political appointees while also converting some career officials into that political appointment um, situation. Uh, So... Uh, What the authors of Schedule F, and so Schedule F is a reference to a particular type of appointee, there's there's Schedule A appointees, Schedule B appointees, Schedule C, and so on. So the Schedule F executive order, which was signed by President Trump uh, late in October of 2020, just weeks before the election, would have allowed him to take career civil servants and convert them into at-will employees. And what that means in practice is that they would then be fireable by Trump. Um, So he could uh, essentially fire them without calls because political appointees serve at the pleasure of the president, career civil servants have job protections that are intended to protect them against um, being fired for political partisan reasons. Um, And what we since that time is that the scale
6: of the Schedule F plan is really vast. The author of the Schedule F
5: executive order uh, um, had suggested they would take 50,000 career employees that they were going to
1: You this i grew up in chicago during the years of richard j daly the first mayor Daly. and um, we had an enormous we had a government that was a large patronage government T- that civil servants they all served at the pleasure of the m- m- mayor basically and that meant that oh gee whiz w- wards that would go along with the mayor politically would get their garbage picked up and wards that didn't wouldn't. Same thing with police services and everything else. It was fundamentally terrifying for large chunks of the city, um, and deeply. Um, um, I don't want to use the word intimidating, but it was um, coercive, coercive to be able to use the government for political ends. And what you're what you're describing in the politicization of these jobs, is a giant patronage army with their hands on the levers of government to do the bidding of a politician, as opposed to the work of the government. To me, that's terrifying.
5: It, it is. And it, it, it's a reflection of a time in America's past. You talk about the machine politics of the daily administration in Chicago. You go back 140 years and you think about why does the American Um, federal government have a civil service system. It's because before that point, we had what was called a spoils system, uh, which was sort of the the victors, the spoils, right? So if you were elected president, you could bring in your own people and populate them throughout the administration. And we moved away from that for a couple of reasons. One is uh, someone who was trying to get an appointment Assassinated President Garfield, so that that was a pretty big motive to shift away from this incredibly politicized mold of selecting uh, people to work in government. Um, but the other was it was clearly not producing good government. Uh, the values associated with a spoil system are values of uh, you know favoritism lack of due process, lack of equal treatment of citizens, it becomes about who you know. And that, that corruption just makes government less efficient. Um, people who want to go into government to serve the public, who care about the public interest, who want to do good science, don't want to go and work in these corrupt, uh, spoiled administration, And so this would very much be a shift back to an earlier, uh, more broken era of American government. But I think it also has the additional danger that it's not just a more corrupt spoil system that we're talking about, it also paves a way towards authoritarian government because mm-hmm. it reduces some of the protections that a civil service system offers the public. To prevent authoritarianism and rule by
1: the president as opposed to rule by law. Yeah, I think people should be very, very concerned about this whole Schedule F notion. And you said the Heritage Foundation, but also Leonard Leo, who corrupted the Supreme Court, has created with a billion dollar, almost $2 billion gift, something called the Tineo group, and that is to be the HR department for this, uh, for for the right wing in America. And it um, is profoundly frightening.
5: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think what heritage signifies and what Leo um, signifies is the way in which Trump has in some degree captured uh, the core interests of the Republican Party. Uh, you, these, these were organizations and interests that existed before Trump, and they have choices about whether to want to align themselves with Trump, but they, they very much have at this point. Even in the aftermath of January 6th, even in the aftermath of threats to the election, they still see no problem with handing Trump with more and more power. Um, and I, yeah, you know, I always go back to
1: being radical.
5: Yeah, it's yeah, it is not is not about conservatism. Um, it, and you know, in some ways, the the one area where Trump has broken with the federalist society is that he that he believed their um, political appointees in government were not radical enough that they wouldn't um, offer justifications for illegal actions that Trump wanted to take. And so he's now gonna recruit a set of lawyers to serve as general counsels in government. And these are sort of the internal referees about what is legal and what is not legal to do. He wants a set of lawyers who are gonna just green light every action that he wants to take place. Yeah. And you know are I you I sometimes just- think about you know, Um, Let let me just give an example here of the first impeachment where Trump was withholding arms from the Ukraine in order to engage in political blackmail. Uh, And at the time, he had one of these general counsels at the Office of Management and Budget who said, "Uh, that's okay, We, We think this is legal, even though you had career civil servants both at the Pentagon And in the Office of Management and Budget, saying, We do not believe this is legal. And it turned out they were right. Um, And they were overruled. Um, Some of those people resigned afterwards. Uh, But with something like schedule at the place, Trump would simply fire them. We would lose that pushback within the government against illegal actions.
1: Yeah. On a happier note, since you brought up Ukraine and since your expertise is in effective governing. Um, In the crucible of war and what happens, you looked at the government of Ukraine and talked about how it adapted to the realities of war. And you found a sort of remarkable kind of digital resistance. The the, the man is coming on after you is going to talk about Ukraine. So I, I think this is a great transition. Would you just talk about what governments can do when they're under stress?
5: Uh, sometimes uh, being under that sort of stress is the mother of innovation. That okay? you, when your back is against the wall, you can do amazing things. And Zelensky, before he became a wartime president, his primary identity was elected as a guy who promised we're going to move away from a sort of traditional communist-era paperwork-driven approach to bureaucracy, and we're going to put the state on a smartphone. Um, And So this was already in the works, moving more and more public services onto a digital space, using data in a way that links public services across agencies. Uh, That was in the works when the pandemic struck, um, and it was already in place when the war happened. And so one of the things that happened then is, you know, you're talking about millions and millions of displaced people, both within Ukraine and then in other parts of Europe. That they could use their smartphones to still connect with government, um, still get help from the Ukrainian government, or still get um, um, welfare services if you are displaced or looking for housing. Uh, and so, hey, you know, that this provided the capacity of the government to continue providing basic services that, in an, you know, just five or ten years earlier, they would have been unable to do, and it would have been much easier for Russia to reduce morale within the population to see many more people struggling to get help and services. So it really is an impressive story.
1: Well, I, that's a great place for us to end, just knowing that government can respond, can do things. And, the, and your point that, you know, politicizing the, uh, the operations in government is the best way to ensure that that doesn't happen. Hey, tell everybody quickly how they can follow your work.
5: So I write, as you mentioned earlier, this uh, blog called Can We Still Govern? You can subscribe to that. You get a free email uh, every week or so. Or you can find me on Blue Sky or on Fred's, and I am no longer very active on Twitter.
1: <laughs> yeah, me either. All right, well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it, and uh, happy uh, holidays to you.
5: To you also. Great to talk to you. Thank you.
1: Bye. Bye. All right, everybody, we're going to take a break from the news. And when we come back, we'll be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. Stay tuned.
0: You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPD eight twenty.
1: Okay, everybody, real treat for you. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman is back with us. He and I last spoke in March of 2022. I think that's when it was, just after he published his book, Here, Right Matters. He is, of course, the former director of European Affairs on the National Security Council, the whistleblower who uncovered Donald Trump's efforts to pervert the presidency by extorting Ukraine. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, he has been nonstop uh, about the effort to educate Americans about why. You know, we can't just sit on our hind end here in our, uh, behind the ocean and ignore the rest of the world. Uh, Colonel Vinman. thank you for joining me again.
7: And uh, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure uh, looking forward to the conversation.
1: You know, like you, I sometimes see us as a great nation with our head in the sand where large segments of the population are sort of not yet willing to see the threats we face or to seize the opportunities right in front of us. And I uh, let me just, you recently wrote something and I want to read it and get you to comment on it. You said, I and likely too many other analysts couch the Ukraine war in terms of advancing U.S. interests. If I could go back two years, I would know to encourage the policy community to frame the war in terms of present, preventing the worst case scenario outcomes. There is real risk that Ukraine Loses significant territory. Ukraine's government is forced into humiliating, humiliating peace settlement. Then it collapses, and Russia, emboldened and perceiving the collective West and NATO as vulnerable, pursues military aggression regionally, including against NATO. Um, I, I, that's absolutely terrifying.
7: It is. Uh, I you know I guess by disposition I tend to be a uh, uh, glass half full. Of- Optimistic. Um, my analysis is grounded in reality and, and a lot of experience. Um, and I felt at times, especially in the beginning of the war, when there was so much pac- pessimism around Ukraine's survival, that um, there had to be an element of cheerleading to indicate to the Western world, to the American population, that Ukraine could win. Uh, the reality is that um, that was the case if, if the, in the first year of the war. It could have been the case in the second year of the war, but um, we did not deliver on the kinds of support that was necessary in order to position Ukraine, to be able to have a a successful offensive, nor did we insist on some conditions that Ukraine had to adopt internally to maximize the possibilities of of victory. And we're, and we're now coming almost not, Ukraine is never going to be wiped off the face of the map. Uh, The reason is that uh, Russia has been damaged so severely, but ukraine is in a real situation where it could suffer some real losses and put the the state in a much more precarious condition where it starts to uh, undermine the viability uh kind of puts it in a position of approaching a failed state status kind of a, a um uh a rump, rump state scenario which is totally uh, would be totally uh, a perfect outcome for russia as well as acquiring some additional territory so instead of just talking about you know the possibilities of victory, we also need to recognize that, incoming full circle, and in the reality where Russia could end up winning, uh, this is deeply disastrous for the United States. You know, in a way, this is—I want to be clear about this. This wouldn't be in no way an outcome, a positive outcome for Ukraine. But in a way, if Ukraine had lost quickly in the first you know week of the war, we would have chalked up. Ukraine's loss to a a small state fighting a large state and being overwhelmed by a superpower. And that kind of would seem reasonable to us. That would seem okay. That's unfortunately the way the world works, the strong prey on the weak. And, uh, and there's not justice, but after two years of war in which we said, as long as it takes and put so many resources beyond Ukraine, it'd be deeply, deeply embarrassing if Russia were to be successful. If Russia were to win, because it wouldn't be just a defeat of Ukraine, it would be a defeat of the United States and the Western world. And it really would make the, the, our Western world look a lot more brittle. Our adversaries could would then start to ask questions like can the US actually win a war? If you think about how things ended up in, in Iraq and in Afghanistan, Iraq actually is you know, still unsettled, but Afghanistan uh, could be chopped up as a loss. Vietnam, some of the other uh, conflicts. The question our adversaries could ask is, can the U.S. really win a war? And that is a disastrous outcome. That is one that invites attacks, that is one that invites instability. Uh, and um, that's what, what worries me right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I want to say the quiet part out loud. Um, if If Ukraine becomes unstable... Because they've lost much territory, their government loses face; it collapses, and Russia gets the idea: "Hey, we can just keep rolling." And if they take on a NATO country, we're in a we're in a we're in a global war like we haven't seen since 1945. And I don't you know people aren't alive; they don't remember how many millions of people were slaughtered. Um, And that's if we decide that we still want to defend a rules-based order or Donald Trump's president and we say, you know what, we really want to go back to the the era when they're just empires and Russia can have its chunk of Europe and China can have its chunk of Asia and we'll send our troops to Mexico or somewhere and um, we'll be in that world. But that world ultimately collapses in violence, too.
7: I think that's right. I think the fact is that um, we probably need to remember that with Ukraine in this war and successful, it's a brushback to, to Russia, to brush brushback to Russia's imperial aspirations, to brushback to authoritarianism at large, that uh, the use of military force to acquire territory is a, a fool's errand. Uh, but it could easily be the opposite, where... Russia has proven right and our adversaries draw different conclusions. I think from my standpoint, what I tried to do, you know, as we come up, come up on a second, uh, rounding out the second uh, full year of war and the real prospects of a full third year of war, because unfortunately Russia is deeply incentivized to fight through 2024, is paint a real stark picture about the dangers for Ukraine, for Europe and for the United States. And cast it from that standpoint to to try to drive some actions from Congress to pass Ukraine aid, additional Ukraine aid, to drive some uh, some realistic assessments or reassessments from the Biden administration that much more needs to be done. Um, what we provided in 2023 was not frankly adequate. Uh, it it didn't come in the right quantities. It didn't come in time. 2024 we actually still have opportunities especially if we make investments in the next uh, several weeks uh, next month or so uh, we're not going to get ukraine aid passed before the end of the year but there's a good there's a reasonable chance that this happens in, in january and then we still have three or four months before kind of an intensive fighting season resumes in the late springtime and in that period of time we can uh we can juice our industrial base to produce additional capabilities. We can transfer significant amounts of resources from our own troops stockpiles. It is something that we have not even we've, tra- we've tapped into storage. We've tapped into kind of um, our our ability to fight major wars, but we really haven't tap- tapped into kind of uh, at least the equipment sets from our operating force, from our troops. When we do that, we can hand those off to the Ukrainians. And we could invest in training and logistics. Those are major, major gaps. Logistics is weak. The Ukrainians are not in the position where they could resource the artillery required or the ammunition required for artillery battles for months. Uh, This is the same for repairing, servicing the mounds of equipment that we provided, but half of it's not in working order. Not through a call to the Ukrainians, but because things get battle damaged and there's no more in terror, but we didn't provide the, the repair ports for it or the trained technicians. And training has been a huge gap, which is one of the things I pointed out in in my uh, in this article you referenced, that yep. the Ukrainians have received baseline training, but they have not received the more kind of complex, comprehensive training to orchestrate battles, which are very complex in, in, in nature. And these are things that we can do in the next four, five months to position the Ukrainians uh, to Withstand Russian accelerating Russian campaigns and and retake territory that is not outside the realm of possibility. But we just need to have a much much more realistic view of the real dangers. If we don't,
1: I mean, the, the, there. I have so many things I want to ask you. Starting with, like, you know, Ukraine's done an unbelievable job, and the, the 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 figures on Russian casualties are astronomical, if they're to be believed, astronomical um, in the damage done to Russia's military capabilities. But this is what, Ukraine is not a NATO military. They they have serious gaps. Um, and not just like they don't have an air force, but the ones you're talking about, like logistics, or even the fact that if they're going to repair something, they're doing it in Poland, a different country that's like not anywhere near where they need it. Um, right. I mean, it's a, it, it's a remarkable what they have achieved starting where they started.
7: It's true. Uh, I mean, think about just from the repairs uh, of, of uh, damaged vehicles at the front lines. Uh, it would be the equivalent of your car breaking down in Chicago and shipping it to New York to get it repaired. What kind of sense does that make? Instead of putting the repair bases in country, one of the things that the U.S. has, uh, one of our superpowers, is our logistics. We have an enormous logistical capability to keep our uh, the the wheels of our military greased, moving forward, advancing towards victory. We need we have the capability to do the same thing to provide a logistics tail for the Ukrainians. We have not done that. There is actually a Department of Defense prohibition on spending money on defense repair uh, logistics inside Ukraine. Everything has to be shipped out out to Poland. Uh, that is, there is not a huge amount of sense. I could certainly I could lay out the, you know, the, the I guess, the logic or illogic of this approach. It reduces the amount of American personnel. That's the one, that's the basic thing that's trying to, be, that's accomplished, but we are not being a good ally unless we help with this particular capability. And there are smart ways to do it where you basically just about neutralize the risk to a to u.s personnel and i'm not talking about soldiers i'm talking about contractors operating yep. in small groups throughout the country in secure facilities uh that are that are able to really have an outside impact so those types of things are are not that hard to do uh, but it shows how the gaps in our support for ukraine and what could you know, Ukraine from,
1: accomplish if we yeah. if we did some of the things that you want us to do what? What? What is the? What would next year be like? What would they be able to push Russia out? I, that seems hard to imagine. What could they do?
7: I think that's hard to imagine. At the beginning of the year, I wrote a kind of a similar piece looking at the entirety of 2023, and I basically put, you know, certainly I was clear about putting Crimea outside the possibility of, of Ukraine's ability to liberate it. I think uh, a realistic, a realistic uh, kind of end state would be a Ukraine that blunts Russian attacks over the course of the next five or six months and builds sufficient capability to, to achieve some some things that they hope to do this, this past go-around, this past summer, but failed to do. Uh, some breakthroughs threatening Russia's land bridge. I think that's not beyond the pale. But the reason that this year is going to be particularly hard is that, and this is, you know, I think sometimes the administration misses it is that we can't extrapolate from forward from from today and just assume that it's going to be um, a frozen front line or a status quo. The fact is that the Russians are learning, the, the Russians are adapting. They've made huge investments in their industrial base, uh, They've in their military industrial base. They've shifted 10 percent of the GDP, 40 percent of the federal budget towards this war effort, to put that in context, all of the money that, all of the the resources that Ukraine and the entirety of the West have pulled towards this war effort in 2023, Russia is matching on its own. About $200 billion is what they're able to, uh, what the Russians have shifted to. So they're producing more vehicles. They're producing drones, which is absolutely critical in this war. And what we haven't seen, and artillery, artillery is actually a major, major component of this war. They now uh, uh, outgun uh, Ukraine like they did at the beginning of the war. The Ukrainians were able to reduce those advantages, but now the the Russians are outgunning them. But we are are also not accounting for the fact that Russia is four times the size of Ukraine by uh, by population. Population. And I think the fact is that we could see a large scale mobilization after. Putin's presidential election march, where he calls up hundreds of thousands of troops to land some major blows. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Obviously, he has his his concrete objectives in Ukraine. He wants to crush an independent Ukraine. And he could do that through military force. But I think he also sees the opportunity to deeply, deeply embarrass NATO and the U.S. And if he does that in the summer time frame, he will be... It it will rock probably. I think there's a good chance it could rock the general election in 2024, that Biden would have been proven to be, uh, you know, the second time loser after Afghanistan uh, and and capable of securing our interests overseas. And that's, you know, do I believe that? No, but that's what Putin would like to cast that image. And I think he would probably try to do something in that uh, summer fall time frame with the intent of uh, influencing our elections here.
1: Is there, um, so we're on, this is all defense. Putin is being aggressive. and, And what you're talking about are ways to defend both Ukraine and the United States, frankly, from Putin's aggression. Is there any, I mean, what have we done to make him pay a price? Sanctions, I suppose. But, I mean, does he have allies around the world we can put pressure on in ways we haven't?
7: Uh, There are ways we could pressure Russia directly. Our sanctions have had a bite, and they'll have a long-term bite, uh, but they are not sufficiently austere to drive Putin's decision-making. If you take a look at the impact on uh, Russia's GDP, it's really been like a percentage point or two, not anything catastrophic. And the the biggest impact that we could have had, we still have, but this is unpalatable, especially in an election year, is to sanction Russian oil. God create shockwaves in the uh, in the global oil and, and energy markets. Um, oil prices would, would spike and would, would trigger another round of inflation. So that's unlikely. But if we had made that decision earlier uh, and really, really punished Russia's ability to generate revenue in a tax base, that would have had some, calcul- some impact on his calculus. Uh, we could still do something. We could price cap. We could reduce the, the amount of revenue that Putin could generate uh, It's sixty dollars a barrel. Now we could reduce it for, uh, to forty dollars a barrel just to make sure. You know he's still going to want to uh, sell it. He's still going to need to that um, that revenue, but he just won't be able to generate enough. You know of that profit uh, to really juice his his uh, economy. So that's one thing we could do. There are secondary sanctions we could apply because one of the things we try to do effectively, and we we've been hit or miss on this, is dual-use technologies the ability to uh, help russia um, produce military material and that's not coming directly to russia but it's working its way through kyrgyzstan in in central asia it's working its way through um that's one of the bigger markets but it's working its way through azerbaijan uh, and turkey and and places like that so we could really kind of ratchet ratchet up uh, um, our secondary sanctions to warn off uh, the, this transfer of, of technology. Those are kind of big stakes. In terms of allies, um, uh, one of the biggest allies is India, but we're also trying to uh, develop a friendly relationship with them to hedge against China. China's been on the sidelines. Uh, they may get off on, off the sidelines if it looks like Russia is about to strike a, a decisive a blow and, and win uh, against Ukraine. Uh, we can't really do that much more against or. Uh, North Korea because we've been sanctioned, but uh, there might be some other options in that regard. Unfortunately, you know, two years in, uh, we've kind of showed our cards to a certain extent, what we're willing to do, and our adversaries kind of know those limits and are going to figure out how to, you know, operate within those those boundaries.
1: Interesting. I I heard the um, uh, Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, uh, say this week, hey, you know, we we might, we, we'd like to support Ukraine, but we don't understand what the end game is for our aid. What did he mean by that? And what kind of an answer can anybody ever give about what's yeah. the end game for giving aid to a country that's been attacked?
7: It's a useful excuse. It's the, the facade of being responsible is what Johnson was for that. There is, I mean, wars are uh, difficult and inherently unpredictable. We didn't expect to be involved in Vietnam for a decade. We didn't expect to be involved in, in Iraq and Afghanistan for, for nearly 20 years combined um, between the two conflicts. I think, you know, we could do, did attempt to define our objectives, uh, but in terms of being able to kind of mark on a particular program, uh, that's a, just a, a patently absurd notion. The kinds of things we can do, is we could best posture Ukraine for success, and Mike Johnson received intel briefings. You could see it in this change of tone on, you know, being uh, almost outright rejecting Ukraine aid to recognizing it's a necessity, but then playing domestic political games to, to yeah. you know, apply pressure to the administration. The bottom line is that he well knows, uh, oh, any responsible party well knows that th- this is essential. Absent U.S. security assistance, absent U.S. budgetary support, this very kind of dire picture for 2024 turns Mm -hmm. close to catastrophic. And it's pretty clear that, um, I guess at this point, if I I could prognosticate, it seems clear that there's probably a deal to be had eventually, maybe in the next month, um, where responsible parties could get together and pass Ukraine in. But it's been precarious all along. It's precarious through the summer. Nothing got passed. McCarthy, the former speaker, was fired, delayed uh, Ukraine aid. Ukraine's kind of been you know, on a shoestring for, for quite some time. Uh, and this aid needs to come sooner, and it must come if we don't want a disastrous outcome. So I think um, Johnson on the uh, House side and a Senate leadership, including McConnell, uh, need to need to need to figure out done. what is the minimum floor for what they want to get and settle and get this thing done so that like this Ukraine aid can pass. Otherwise, it's going to get a, a, become a, an increasingly complex geopolitical landscape for the United States.
1: Yeah, nightmare for all of us. I mean, I just feel like our future and Ukraine's are not unrelated, and democracy's future and Ukraine are not unrelated. Um,
7: it's a pivot point uh, for our security, as, as I wrote not Really important
1: for our security. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh, uh, do we? Is there a silver lining in Europe um, in the recent election in Poland, and does that help?
7: I think so. I think it's it is it is. I'm going to take it back to the U.S., but it does kind of remind me that um, you know there is a clear, much more clear-eyed view. Of um, the stakes, and if there was a um, a complacency about everything being okay in our democracy or in Poland, or an apathy that you know a single vote, a my vote doesn't matter. I think the population here and in Poland are recognizing that their their voices do matter, and that their systems, their democracies are at threat. Uh, I am very very proud to see the, the polls step up. And uh, pick a uh, moderate, reasonable government uh, rather than one that was uh, diving increasingly towards uh, um, illiberalism and anti-democracy. Anti- in the U.S., I see the same pattern. 2020, Biden won. 2022, the, the, this red tsunami turned out to be a red red ripple. And we can see that playing out in, in Congress where the Republicans are tying themselves in knots. 2023, which which most people didn't pay attention to, Virginia uh, took back the Virginia uh, State House. uh, And there were a number of other positive outcomes in in Ohio referendum on reproductive rights in Pennsylvania on, on courts. There is generally a rejection of extremism. And I think it's because people understand that their rights, liberties are at stake. And Poland points the way, but our own domestic elections uh point the way that there's i think these radicals are setting themselves for uh, up for a huge fall as long as we show up as long as we play our part as long as we go out and vote and and speak up for the things that matter to us we can keep this democracy intact but it's going to take work the rest of this uh, this year in 2024 are in play my twin brother my identical twin brother is running for the house in virginia i was proud uh, he's to talk in about that. directly yep yeah. Yep. Uh, I mean, your he, family has made so
1: many sacrifices. Yeah. And now this. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's great. Great.
7: Yeah, it, it's uh, clearly exciting for me. I think it seems to be exciting for the American public. It had 50,000 donations from across the country, uh, a major amount of donations from Virginia. People are excited to have somebody that's going to be values based and principled. A uh, proven uh, national security leader holding a, uh, that seat blue, uh, making sure that Abigail Spanberger, who, who served there uh, previously, is now running for governor's mention, um, can can walk off and and have a good steward for that seat and keep uh, keep it in Democratic hands. So it's pretty amazing to be able to support that, support a huge number of other um, Democratic candidates through my uh, work through Vote Next and uh, my policy work. I run a think tank inside our um, nonpartisan C3. So, you know, we're we're in it. You know, we we. Th- this is not the way I intended to serve. I intended to serve in uniform and uh, out of the public eye. Um, Trump decided to draw, draw me in, make me a target, and uh, this is what he has to reckon with. We will continue to fight, uh, fight him, fight manga defend this country, to defend the the promise of. Uh, of uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and those, that American dream that my father uh, traveled to the United States as a refugee back in 79, that that's the same thing for um, my children and our children's children, and that promise endures.
1: Proving once again that there are many ways to be a patriot, and you and your family have, have tried many of them and continue to do it, um, much to all of our benefit. I can't thank you enough, and I can't wish you a uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Um, uh, and, you know, peace for the rest of this year to rest up for what, as you pointed out, is an enormously important uh, 2024.
7: Thank you very much. Uh, if uh, you would like to follow some more, I wrote very, very lengthy articles on on the uh, Ukraine war, the prognosis for twenty twenty four on Substack. Uh, it's a good way to find me. Uh, I'm still on social media, although all my kind of deep thoughts are uh, in in Substack. And um, looking forward to joining you in the near future.
1: You bet. And I will put out a note for uh, those of you who are listening about how to follow this. Uh, really, rem- I've read it. It's remarkable stuff. Thank you so much. Uh, and you, uh, we'll talk in the new year.
7: Okay.
4: Take
1: care. Bye. All right, everybody. Um, it's your turn. We'll take a break. Seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight. 763 9278 when we come back.
0: Edwin Eisentrath is taking your calls now at 773 763 9278 The big picture is on now. WCPT 820.
1: Okay, we're back. Let's get to it, Jim.
6: Hi Edwin, welcome back. You didn't get old I don't know if you're disappointed with that or not, being a couple man. But anyway, I was going to say Trump was was last week. He offered to sell his threads thread by thread to his supporters. I guess that's one way to make some money. Sell his, uh, you know, the he, office he was arrested in. Yep. And the uh, yeah, he offered to sell his clothes, which is always a good thing. But the other thing that I think is important. Uh, the juries aren't taking this this uh, nonsense about the election uh, interference. They're really socking it to them. Uh you saw what happened to Rudy, 180 140 million dollars. Uh the fake electors are topping left and right, That uh, is is squealing, you know, he's he's t- singing like a bird. Because he knows that these juries, once they get in front of these juries, they're they're dead, they're dead. So, you, you, you agree? I mean, to me, I see these juries; are not taking any. Uh, they're not Trump supporters. I, that's sure. I
1: am. A, I am a big uh, believer in American justice. We do not always get it right, but. Um, I even think you get, you know, people who are sympathetic to Donald Trump on a jury, but they raise their hand and they swear that they will look at the evidence. And now they're in a room with their fellow jurors, not with Fox News. They're in a courtroom and, and, they're, and they're seeing the real evidence and they're hearing the real testimony. Um, and, and, they, and they are asked to make a judgment based on that. Not Fox News, not Breitbart. I think he's going down. And, you know, Rudy, um, th- th- it, I mean, there are consequences to ruining people's lives for your political gain. And, and uh, Rudy... Uh, deserves what happened to him. He's guilty. Um, the penalty is, is is stiff. I don't think, like Alex Jones, I don't think he'll ever pay all of it. I don't think he has the money. Um, but the rest of his life, this debt is hanging over his head. Um, and we're not done with him. You know, he's, he's I, a defendant. I, other
6: I don't care if you're a Trump supporter or if you're in the cult or whatever you are. If you're sitting in the room with 12 jurors and you're looking at each other in the eye and you're looking at the evidence... You want your conscience to be clear when you walk out of that room. You don't want to be. Right. Uh, that's That's the most important thing. Edwin, good, good to hear you back and, and have a good week. It's raining like uh, take care of it. Take care, back
1: You bet. Th- thank you, Jim. All right, Paul, how's it going?
8: Well, Edwin, I was just going to kind of review 2023 with you, and good year. I, I think you probably agree that it was. Um, uh, on balance, a positive sign going forward into 2024. I, I, I know you, even if I said it wasn't, you would be the optimist and say that it that it is that was a 2023 was something to celebrate rather than to lament. Right?
1: I agree. It doesn't mean that the that, that the MAGA crowd isn't hurting people, that they aren't doing terrible things, that they aren't causing real damage. But the majority has is awake to their game and doesn't like it.
8: But it, I guess just on a personal level, and you and I are kind of about similar vintage, I think, you know, give or take a year. I've yep. never felt this way about America before. I've never felt this deeply dismayed about what's happening. Um, I mean, there have been times, most of my life, American politics has not gone my way. Um, so... I've been used to being in the minority and, you know, things not being the way I would like them. But, uh, I always felt optimistic that it will, things will get better in terms of not, not everything. I, I won't get everything I want for Christmas, but it doesn't mean it won't be a decent Christmas, but it's just the, I think like what Jim was talking about, I mean, to hear people like Rudy Giuliani, say, I told the truth, and the reporter's saying, but there were no facts. He goes, oh, you bet the rock. Stay tuned. And he says that because he's not—he's only saying that to the people who won't listen to anything. Oh, yeah, okay. People who, who don't want to listen to the truth. To have so many people that have no interest in the truth is uh, its alarming.
1: I, I am less dismayed than I have been. Oh, I, I've never been really, I'm, I'm proud of America. I, you know, they, yes, there are liars and there are people who have, you know, who don't pay for news. They just don't pay for it. They, they have other things going on. So what they get is what they hear on Fox and on the, you yeah. know, there's a lot of money spent on the right wing to, to get its story. You and I talk on this radio station, but there are thousands of right wing radio stations around the country getting that word Hi. out. You know, um, and yet, and yet, this year, Americans have seemed to have said, you know, I think we've had enough of this. You want to take over my school board to get your hands off of it? You think you're going to run the tables in Virginia? Nope, you're not. I mean, I think regular people have said, this is appalling. Now, the fact that like 30% of Americans are still in the Trump camp is, you know, uh, kind of a shock to you and me, but they don't live in the, you know... In the world of information, they live in that crazy bubble. Um, but I think is that, that the people who don't live in that bubble are determined to pop it this
5: year. Yeah. I just yeah. think we're, and
1: we're I, I, you know. We're, yeah. Yep, go ahead.
8: I, I think that um, when you t- take a look at some of the, the detailed things like you just mentioned, the, the particulars, yeah, there were t- very few Things to be so-called blue about if you're blue. I mean, we were we did very well. Nothing really to lament um, except for the uh, the, you know, the the atmosphere itself. Um, but I, I have to say, coming to the end of President Biden's first term, I I, I am rem- in remarkable ways much more satisfied and, and pleasantly surprised about him as a president than I ever thought I would be. I was, I was. You know, lukewarm on him, but okay. I was going to vote for him, of course. But what we got was so much more, and the kind of president he's been, I have been so much more impressed with than I ever thought it would be.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think he's been a, he's been a terrific president. I, I agree with that. Yeah, um, and he, yeah. and not at an easy time for sure. Not at an
8: easy. Time. He had the he he has the way of keeping cool. The, the, the kind of cool that that, that really
6: uh,
8: brings meaning to the old adage you know, "Cooler heads will prevail," and when you, he's almost the poster boy for that.
1: Yeah. Really. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and not just you know, and do the right thing. I mean, cool-headed, and then do the right thing. I mean, on yeah. on mismanagement of the economy, um, remarkable. His man, You know, his management, not just of getting the economy moving, but of reshaping it for the benefit of working women and men, fabulous. His defense of our rights up against this revanchist court, fabulous. Um, I think he's done a great job in foreign policy. I know that's a harder one for people, but I think he's done a, a, a remarkable job. And God knows the world is difficult.
8: Well, I, I think, you know, people say his foreign policy is, I I don't know what else he would do that you know that in a way there's a Hippocratic oath first do no harm and I think he's actually really managed it in that way first do no harm and do good um, otherwise what what would what do people expect him to do you know when you think about uh, the the other one uh, who says if I were the president this would have The whole thing has never happened. Well, I'll tell you what would happen. Remember when Trump dropped the MOAB, the mother of all bombs, on that mountaintop in Afghanistan? I think we're going to kill some terrorists, and there was never any confirmation that anything was ever done except a whole lot of rock was blown up. Now, the mother of all bombs is a conventional bomb that the military says we have absolutely no use for because it's blast radius is so large it's not of any use its blast radius is essentially equal to the first nuclear bomb we dropped in hiroshima a one mile blast radius the one a one mile radius which means that 3.14 that is pi the air of a circle 3.14 square miles of complete destruction he would have he would have dropped that on gaza he would do that just to say I'm just to be a tough guy and that's the kind of thing yeah you know what
1: I, I i i've been thinking about that paul and, and honestly, I don't know whether he would drop it on Gaza. I would expect he would. We'd be at war with Iran. Yeah. And, and, and he might drop it there. I mean, just the idea of expand. Look, the world isn't safer when you're at war all over the place. The idea right, right. is to make the world peaceful. To try and limit wars. And the fact that Ukraine has not yet boiled over into a full-on European war. Yeah. Um, It is because of brilliant leadership, uh, both uh, in in the White House and, frankly, in Ukraine and Europe, Uh, although these Republicans, man, they're going to stumble us into a bigger war by, like, linking the aid to whatever their domestic agenda is. Um, The fact that Israel-Palestine hasn't expanded into a giant regional war that sucks everybody in, again, it's remarkably hard to keep these things contained in ways that don't kill hundreds of millions of people. And I, that's just not hyperbole. That's history.
8: And the question being standing, you know, we haven't, America has not won a war in almost 80 years. And it's because uh, we our, our leadership keeps treating these things as political uh, props.
1: Well, I, I don't know. That I, I don't know about that. I mean, I heard that from, in my last conversation, I just don't know if I agree with that. The the aims of the wars are different. You know, I mean, we wanted to get rid of Al-Qaeda training camps. Okay, we got rid of them. Then we stayed and tried to do something else, which is not really war. We used the military to try and rebuild a country in an image that had nothing to do with the culture of that country. That's crazy. Yeah.
8: Right. And that that bucks against history, ancient history, is that uh, conquest must include assimilation and we don't we don't like that idea uh we just think we're gonna walk in and we're and you're gonna do what we say and it never it never happens it never happens that way it is and as a matter of fact whenever a nation is engaged in war with another nation you exchange cultures we don't like that idea you exchange cultures and uh i mean you look at england you know, it's kind of like uh, every other corner of uh, Piccadilly Circus is uh, well, you got bangers and mash, and then you'll have tandoori, and uh, you know, so, two, yeah. two restaurants, bangers and mash, and fish and chips on two corners, and uh, tandoori and vindaloo on the other two. So they they occupied India and in and now India occupies England. So it's that's the way it goes, but we don't
5: accept that.
1: No. Not even close. All right. Well, Paul, I hope you have a, a fabulous end of the year. Uh, happy holidays. And um, and you come geared up for what's to come.
8: Same same to you. We'll talk to you next year. You bet. Thanks.
1: All right. Um, Ron, I think you're next.
6: Yes. Uh, with the uh, fighting in the, in the Gauss area and the fighting in the Ukraine, it doesn't seem that the United Nations is very effective, and uh, I haven't heard anything from that organization. Uh, maybe I'm expecting too much.
1: Yeah, well, you know, they they have not. They're not very good in a crisis, for sure. Mm-hmm. Right? That's not. I mean, they don't. You know, they don't really have an army. They don't. Um, they they are they're supposed to help us set some rules that keep conflict from happening um but uh they were not successful and they, there's nothing that they've done that's helpful in uh the in the fighting in the Middle East for sure um they were very slow very slow to acknowledge um the brutality of of the initial Hamas attack um, they've been much quicker to say the humanitarian crisis that's followed in Gaza is of a magnitude that we can't abide. But where they, where I think they can be helpful, will be it once there's a ceasefire, once there's a, once they're done, they can be very helpful in the rebuild. But I agree with you. Right now, useless, right. useless, and infuriating. Yeah.
4: Okay. Thank you.
1: Thank you. You bet. You bet. Well, um, I want to um, spend a little time, and um, I, I should just say seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight if you want to uh, join the conversation. But look, this has been an unbelievable year, right? And we we talk about, and many of you listen to sort of left-leaning news or consume left-leaning news. And it's filled with uh, the terrible things that the MAGA uh, uh, crowd is doing when they have power, right? What they're doing to women, unconscionable what they did to that woman in Texas, drove her out of the state, threatened her life, Um and she's not alone, right? Unconscionable what they've done to libraries and books and schools. Um, that they can't possibly give enough tax breaks to the wealthiest among us. Um, all of these things, or I say without talking about the, you know, the just crazy, irresponsible, dangerous, um, baiting, but um, radical things that you hear from Donald Trump about uh, destroying democracy and just, l'état c'est moi, I am the state, right? Appalling, appalling stuff. We spend our time talking about that. Um, We spend less reminding each other that, um, what was it that Churchill said, Americans will can always be counted on doing the right thing after they've exhausted all the other opportunities. And I think we have exhausted those other opportunities, and we know it. And you see it in state after state, all over the country. Americans are talking to each other and saying, "Really, really, is that really the road we want to? we want to take this 250-year experiment just in time for our 250th birthday and throw it away?" And Americans are saying, "Yeah, no, we don't." Now I know there's a hardcore, and they're going to, and they're losing. And in 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 their panic, they are doing terrible things, terrible, hurtful things think about this as we have passed D-Day. We know we're going to win, but there will still be terrible casualties. Anyway, that's how I look at the year to come. We are going to win, but they are going to, but, but we have to fight hard, and there's still going to be terrible casualties. Dave, what do you think?
4: Hey, Edwin. I'm, um, hey. I'm listening to you. Um, with that work, i a couple of weeks ago, I brought up that when it's over, and it's going to finally get over, who's going to end up paying for reconstruction? I felt it'd probably be us. Well, this morning I was watching on CNN, they were talking about all these other neighboring countries, and that would probably end up with with pay, but didn't say that thing about Israel. And they're the ones causing all this destruction. And uh, that ain't right. and uh, And when Paul mentioned about ain't won a war in 80 years, I take a little exception to it. There's one who's a veteran of the Cold War. That's the last war we won. If you recall, we got them to take down the Berlin Wall. And the president, in that, the, like uh, just before Reagan, you had Jimmy Carter. He's the last one that had been a, a military-minded man and a military man and, and, you know, kept the peace, you know. Everybody after you know R squared and and then of course yeah yeah okay you had Bush the first he was a former pilot and that you know but yeah. they were all every one of them they had war something we were somewhere overseas with war so Jimmy Carter and then Cold War so that was only forty yeah. something years well, ago.
1: Well, I mean um, the mindset is I just let me challenge that mindset a little bit. When somebody says we haven't won a war in X amount of time, it's the wrong question. It's the wrong statement. What America's military has accomplished in the last 60 years is keeping the peace. It's establishing a rules-based order that's allowed commerce and international relations to flourish. It's made the world smaller so that you can work in Dubai or work – um, in Stockholm. I mean, American business is all over the planet. We are all wealthier. There is much more abundance in the world. And there's much more freedom in the world because America's military has, has enforced this rules-based order since World War II. So the, the question of, like, what wars have we won is is such a limited question. What peace have we have we Helped enforce on an entire for an entire planet, so that we can all live better. We've made terrible mistakes, of course we have, of course yeah, we have. You know, but we have not we abused this power like others have
4: either. Yeah, we've had our footprint in like 140 countries and maybe more now. Yeah. And I just read yeah. where our military is now at the smallest it's ever been, even before World War II, on personnel. Yeah. That's yep. not good, yep. but um, that's you know no well, exception I'm, I'm, to that because our I, got, I, our group the Cold War we've never got any recognition to this day and it's been over forty years you know since that well Let I don't know, get to
1: what I, Eastern Europe is plenty happy we did it
4: yeah well,
1: <laughs> that, yeah like that that and recent that, election in Poland that happened because we won the Cold War. So
4: because I you the know, wall I, came down. We yeah, got the wall yeah. done. We didn't leave with a helicopter off of the ambassador's roof or have a right. ship come in with you know a mission accomplished around it yep, or yep, you know yep. all this. But what I was going to say real quickly so you get to somebody else, it was uh, Rudy. You think these two to ever get their money? I mean, my God, this I don't know. And uh, you know what? But he he was his, his lawyers and.
1: and yeah I, yeah, I don't know what he's going to end up paying, or if he's going to be able to end up paying anything. Um, but I do know
4: okay.
1: that that um, e- even if they don't get the money, they got what they got was a jury and a judge said you were right, yeah. he was wrong. He's he, you aren't to blame. He is, and that ma- that matters a lot. Not
4: to yeah. but uh, yeah, yeah. He um, all right, Dave. You know, have a happy new year. No You
1: don't feel appeal it, also. Yeah. Good luck to (laughs) him. Spend more money on the lawyers. Anyway, have enjoy the rest of your year, and I will talk again in the new year. David, you're next. uh, Oh,
9: thanks. Yeah, uh, to Uh, follow up with him and and yeah, you can hear me. I'm here. Hello, hello. Can you hear me? Hello. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, thanks. I mean, I, to follow up with that previous caller and to talk about Texas, uh, you know, Texas has got a very corrupt attorney general. So hypothetically, the credit rating of the entire state Every bond issue, every school bond issue, every sewer bond issue, every library and you know functional aspect of government is in jeopardy because they've got a criminal that's uh, the attorney general of the state. So Chicago being a financial city, don't invest in Texas or you're really putting yourself at risk. And so let market forces uh, guide uh, Texas out of that trap. The sooner they get rid of Paxton, the sooner they get rid of Abbott, uh, they'll get into a a healthy financial system. And uh, the issue about uh, the social contract. You know, America was founded on the social contract that uh, the king pretended he was put in charge by God and that uh, he was basically not looking out for every sparrow. Uh, He was just taking all of the uh, taxes, the investment money for the regents, and taking it back to London and partying. So he wasn't reinvesting in the colonies. He was uh, basically creating a party with the taxes. And we decided that we could run our own lives, thank you, and we don't need a stinking king. And when you look at somebody like Donald Trump and Fox News and all of the scammers that have come because they claim that government should be run like a business are just flat liars. The government should be run like a nonprofit. And the nonprofit. Every, any of the sewers, uh, uh, sewer money should be paid on making sure the, sure the sewers work and the fresh water systems and the school money, but these guys have figured out ways to sap every every institution in America with crap laws and, and uh, 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 fake standards that they can
1: uh, uh, sabotage we the people. David, I got to let that be the-, the last word because we've run out sure. of time. So thank you for that. You. And everybody who's listening, I, I have a great holiday. Um, I will see you in the new year. And thank you, just from the bottom of my heart, thank you to all of you for being part of this journey. To the folks who are working on the show and those who are listening and those of you who are calling and participating, um, that this is what the democracy is. We talk to each other. We make better decisions together. You take care. I'll see you in the new year.